I'm Alex Shaw. I'm Sharon Shaw. And, and welcome, welcome to, to School of Movies. <laughs> the Matrix Reloaded. Do we proceed? Yes. You still only human. All of our lives, we have fought this war. Tonight, I believe we can end it. That's a nice trick. Huh. Upgrades. Mr. Anderson. Surprised to see me? Somehow he's found a way to copy himself. Now there's more than one of them. A lot more. Boring from the surface straight down to Zion. There is only one way to save our city. Neo. What happens if I fail? Then Zion will fall. They need you. I need you. Prophecy is true. What if tomorrow the war could be over? Isn't that worth fighting for? Isn't that worth dying for? This is the second of our Matrix shows, and the first time that we get to talk about one of the maligned sequels. And I want you all to keep one thing in mind as we venture through, listeners and guests. Much as many of us might like to imagine that there is no Matrix sequel, they happened. They were not well received by either audiences or critics, and not paid attention to or respected in popular culture like the first one was. And yet, every one of them is both an elaboration upon the original themes of the superbly delivered 1999 original, and in some ways a refutation of the oversimplification that comes with delivering that crowd-pleasing hero's journey. All three, so far, to date at recording time, are messy and convey their complex themes in convoluted, awkward and often dissatisfying ways. But in flagrant opposition of many critics at the time who said they wanted their action movies big, loud and dumb, these are big and loud, small and quiet, self-serious, silly and clever. They deal with enormous symbolic scenarios, sometimes coming off as pompous and impenetrable or overly sentimental, and the action while jaw-dropping can also be kind of tedious. 
But frankly, the worst thing that we can do with this series is to take absolutely everything literally and at face value. There are layers of symbolism, some of it subtle, some of it blatant. And The Matrix has never been about what goes on in the films, but what what goes on in the films represents. These sequels could accurately be described as disastrous in terms of the barometer of success set by the first movie, but what they are not is mediocre. In fact, they are so densely packed that we've taken well over a decade to prepare to talk about them, and luckily we have an amazing crew to lend their thoughts and voices to this discussion of the dizzying ups and the irritating downs. Brendan Agnew of Synapse. You do not truly know someone until you podcast with them. <laughs> Longtime friend of the show, Victoria Luna B. Grieve. And I didn't have a choice to be here. It was merely cause and effect. Recurring guest and vocal member of the Discord community, Alexa Vargas. French is my favorite language to swear in. <laughs> and Mackenzie Eastrum of Video Game, the Movie, the Podcast. Yeah, I don't have a quote because I didn't think of this ahead of time. <laughs> Who is, I'm assuming, stretching her knees up into her sweater so that she can have it Zion ready. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome aboard. Let's talk about Matrix 2, and for a while now I've been saying that in the same way that the Hobbit trilogy should have been two movies as originally intended, when they were going to be directed by Guillermo del Toro, just have a think about that for a little minute, <sighs> and in the brightest timeline they were. I think in a similar timeline, the 2003 follow-up to The Matrix 1999, as represented in these two middle movies, Reloaded and Revolutions, was one epic three-hour film about the war between Zion and the machines. So how would that have been to watch, do you think? Well, Sharon and I found out because I edited the damn things together and tried to make it feel like this is something that you could have sat down in early 2003, or was it like mid-2003? It was 2003. And in conjunction with the Animatrix and the Enter the Matrix video game and uh, all of the other things that tied into the multimedia event that was the year of the Matrix, watched this inspired by Lord of the Rings, even though at the time they were filming, the Lord of the Rings wasn't even out yet. Big, epic, like, like follow-up to The Matrix, but that was still just one thing, rather than the back-to-back, back-to-the-future, parts two and three, Pirates of the Caribbean, parts two and three, making it a trilogy, and continuing and finishing off within the same time frame. So what was it like, Sharon? Because uh, I, I took a chunk out of uh, the second film and a bigger chunk out of the third mm. to sort of propel it along. I think possibly because it's been quite some time since I saw them individually, it was, I would say difficult, but I wasn't really trying. It, there was very little that seemed obviously missing. Mm. It wasn't until we watched the whole of Reloaded again today mm. that I was like, oh yeah, that bit's in there. I'll ask you again next week because we'll then have seen all of Re uh, Revolutions. Mm. Uh, but to me, uh, I was expecting it to go much more smoothly. And it'd be like, you know what, uh, the, with, with all of the, uh, the extra weight and the waiting times and uh, the long, lengthy action sequences in the real world of revolutions uh, trimmed back hard, and a lot of all of the talking in Zion and wearing sweaters and arguing about tactics, 
uh, just removed just to lighten the load, I thought it was going to feel more like a complete package. But honestly, watching it together, I was like, that feels like a, a lightened, shortened down version of Reloaded, so it's less good. And all of the things I didn't like about Revolutions were not necessarily undone mm. by the, uh, the, the the brisk jog through the events yeah. that I uh, reduced it down to in like an it came down in like a, an hour and 25 and an hour and 45 all told yeah I think again watching it today watching Reloaded today it was having taken out a good bit of the conflict between Locke and Morpheus it meant that the the philosophy that goes with the physical world mm. felt thin yeah. to the point of being almost absent. I mm. think you do need that, otherwise you, you kind of lose one of the mm. very important legs of the tripod. It's important to remember that my part two also contained the third act of Reloaded. The, uh, the actual culmination point was just after the freeway chase. So uh, that actually leads me to my second question. And that is for everyone in the group. What is different about Matrix 2 relative to Matrix 1? Think, so sitting down in the cinema or sitting down to watch it after having seen the first one on DVD. Think tone and aesthetic and pacing and music even and locations and dialogue and structure. Like, what's the difference between Matrix 1 and Matrix 2? Well, all of those things. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, but the specifics of those things. Very minor point, all things considered, but you mentioned the music. The music in this has a lot less of the very intense synth stuff that was in the first movie, Mm -hmm. which was extremely iconic and very good scoring for the first movie. But I feel like Reloaded is really trying to ground you into the humanity of the real world. And so it really heavily emphasizes percussion and drum work a lot more. Mm. And that's really interesting for the theming that they're going for, because it's definitely a lot more nuanced than the first movie and very intentionally so it's it's quite clearly trying to deal with the fact that the first movie was the icon that it was Mm. and come make it more complex one of the initial like aesthetic things you can see about the matrix reloaded is that it sort of heightens everything that was a, a little bit more subtle in in the original film like the one of the things that really jumped out at me is how you can very easily tell that the agents in Reloaded are wearing dark green suits mm. and that when Smith takes them over, their their suits turn black, which is yeah. something that was, they, they kind of like go back and forth between like maybe dark green or dark brown in the original. You know, everything is a lot more. It, 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 it feels like they're leaning into the artificiality of the Matrix itself because the first film has already ripped that Band-Aid off. You already know this is an artificial world. And so Reloaded specifically, because it takes place, there's so much Matrix stuff in it. It it still looks like the same Matrix in that it's got like, you know, the the lighting and a lot of the, the old buildings and, and stuff like that. But everything seems like amped up in terms of its um, in terms of its like exaggerated nature. I mentioned in the last episode folks will have listened to, which is the one we recorded in 2019 on the original film, when the first edition Blu-ray of The Matrix emerged, they had regraded it so that everything had a sort of a sickly green pallor to it to better match films two and three. So the second edition that launched in 2018 um, 
it looks gorgeous because you get skin tones back again. That, that, that the original 99 Matrix was not supposed to be that kind of sickly yellowish green the whole way through. And, uh, you know, being able to to get back to that healthy, kind of frosty vibe, especially about the blue uh, um, human world, it, it, it sort of it unlocked that movie, and to a degree it separated it from its sequels. It does make sense that that frosty blue would be there in the first one and then have ebbed away slightly mm. in the Matrix of the second one, which I will discuss when we get to the There was also theory. almost an overexposed... A lightness to uh, everyone's faces like there was very bright light shining on everyone in that first one in the uh, the, the new print so it always seemed like like almost like Neo had never really used his eyes before and all the lights were way too bright once he managed to get out of there but in this one Bill Pope the cinematographer kept everything within a very specific range of light and dark balance in terms of scoring, Don Davis returned for both films and specifically dominates in the third. This second film, though, we'll talk about the mix of music later, but there are several action scenes, two of which were scored originally by Davis that changed in development. The Burly Brawl became a blend of Davis and Juno Reactor and the Chateau entirely composed by Rob Duggan, who was behind that iconic clubbed to death music that you heard so much in the early 2000s. Now I got really into Rob Duggan around this time. He released a double album one CD full of instrumentations, the other CD with his lyrics along with the instrumentations, which is a strange combination because he sounds somewhere between Tom Waits and the sad old magician is reloading his suitcase and the one-legged mermaid and Chris Rea driving home for Christmas with a thousand furious angels. So what I'm going to play for you now is the agent fight at the beginning with Rob Duggan's lyrics. And I actually really, really suggest tracking down and listening to this guy's stuff. He's kind of fascinating and he does things that blend synth with classical in a really gutsy way. So this is Furious Angels from the double album, Furious Angels. Like a sentence of death, I got no options left, I got nothing to show now. I'm down on the ground, I got seconds to live. And you can't go now Cause love Like an invisible bullet Shut me down and I'm bleeding Yeah, I'm bleeding And if you go Furious angels Will bring you back to me Will bring you back to me If you go 
A thing that I've noticed uh, for Reloaded specifically, I don't actually think uh, Revolutions has this problem so much, is that a lot of the locations feel kind of weightless and video gamey, not just in The Matrix. The place where he talks to the uh, Oracle is also just a big empty lot so they can do the Smith fight. Um, the uh, castle just, it doesn't have the, you know, grimy weight of the uh, building that they used in Matrix 1. Like, uh, parts of So you of mean the video ma- games from this era, the PlayStation era, the 2000s, rather yes. than now where they pile on the dirt a bit more. Your copies are still between my ribs and there's no saving me. happens unfortunately i'd say in the real world segments um i and i know why it's happening it's happening because they're trying to you know make zion feel big because it does have to house a lot of people and it's just uh it's kind of early in the cgi uh skill set for them to be making those feel lived in in terms of the the tone i think what Brendan was saying about artificiality and Alexa, what you said there about that sort of video game feel to some of the locations. There's there's two things going on at once in terms of the tone here for me, and that is one, the references to what is now the Matrix universe. Some of them are just quite throwaway, but there are things discussed which happen in the Animatrix which not everybody would have seen. Ah, and but at this point, the Animatrix hadn't yet been released. That annoyed people. Right. When the kid so they, turns they up, it's like, well, if you've seen the Animatrix, right. we can't. This it won't be released for three months. Yeah. Okay, so... I do believe one of the shorts was released in cinemas before yeah, No, this. you're right. The final the flight, flight of the Osiris, Osiris, but you had to watch Dreamcatcher. We didn't have to. No, just you just come in, watch the final flight of the Osiris, and then leave. And then leave quick. <laughs> Get out of there. It's right I on top of you. <laughs> I take that deal. Flight of the Final Fantasy. We'll talk about that later. Yeah, of course. Yeah, that's the next yeah, thing. But the these references give a sense that the world has become much bigger than it was before. However, that artificiality and that video game feel to it, and it struck me much more this time. I think actually, in retrospect of having seen Resurrections, it feels much more like a mask, like the sense of everything, certainly within the Matrix, being a front was far more acute, I think, this time, and certainly much more acute than it is in the first one, even after 
Neo learns what the Matrix is, when he's in the Matrix, it still feels almost real mm. to him. One of the things that I think accidentally works in this film's favor is that you're dealing with a giant video game world that is literally about to get rebooted. And so you've, you've got like a, a film that because it's trying to do so much different stuff, this this entire project was wildly ambitious and they were basically, you know, using technology that they hadn't quite mastered yet to do things that we couldn't quite do seamlessly. It comes off feeling like a a video game that's getting strained beyond its technological limitations before it's big reskin or reset or something. Uh, just the, the, they'll literally break physics and have character models start looking wonky because it's having trouble loading assets. And that's why <laughs> that's why you've got like rubber face people and stuff like that. And, and none of that was was like things that they could have intentionally planned for. But, but you know, after you just play like Saints Row four and you look at this, it's like, oh, yeah, no, that kind of works. Yeah, it gets an excuse where a lot of other films wouldn't. For example, like Pirates of the Caribbean, if, th if things start looking like jib-jabs, you're like, they didn't have jib-jabs back in the pirate days? Indeed, but here, Neo can kind of clip into a wall and just keep running, and we're like, yeah, that's good. Oh, it's glitched, it's glitched. <laughs> this must be the Ubisoft version of The Matrix. No. <laughs> I mean, on those w uh, words... It doesn't have anywhere near enough sexual assault to be the Ubisoft version of The Matrix. Or, or Sorry. Towers. Correct. Or towers. Yes. Although, let's be fair, it is not exempt from sexual assault, there is at least one sequence Holy of that in this yeah. movie. His name is the Merovingian. He is the embodiment of sexual assault. Yeah, the Merovingian most definitely tricks the woman in the red dress, now in a pink dress, into eating a chocolate cake so good it makes her cum. I'll have what she's having, but yeah, the guy's a fucking creep. But regarding the early 2000s effects and their notorious patchiness when it comes to rendering people, for my two movies into one edit, I went out of my way to try to get all of those bits where someone who was previously a live action actor suddenly turns into their millennial rubber version of a person within the Matrix and just clip them out. Even the hallowed Lord of the Rings films were not above this. Remember Legolas's floppy bendy stunt double? So the burly brawl was cut back by a good minute or so and it's actually way better because it exhausts you less. What remains on screen is a magnificently coordinated one versus a hundred Yen Wu-Ping tour de force. And most importantly, you never start questioning all of those Agent Smith faces. They all look like Hugo Weaving. And there's just fewer moments where you go, because they just, they can't handle Neo's skin and Neo's face. The moment that he grabs the pole, next time you watch it, that's when it starts intercutting between reality and a 2000s video game. One shot that I couldn't get rid of is the one where the agent jumps on a car and destroys it during the freeway chase because that is a load-bearing stunt. It needs to happen, you need to see it happen, otherwise the cars spiraling in slow motion afterwards don't make any sense, you need that impact. But Sharon very astutely pointed out that one of the reasons, and watch for this next time you're watching early 2000s Millennial Rubber, one of the reasons they can't convince us real people, or even real simulations of people, is the shoulders. They're way too roundy, floppy, and they don't conjoin with the arms in the way that the human skeleton should. All the weight in the body sort of rests on the pelvis, 
in real life. But that doesn't happen with millennial rubber guys flopping through the air with their slightly too long noodly arms flailing wildly. But like I said, you take most of those bits out, suddenly the film feels a lot more impactful. And the burly brawl in particular reclaims its place as a stunning piece of cinema that no one will see because every other version than mine has a percentage of its time reserved for bouncing cartoon people. Going off of especially what Sharon was talking about, to, to me, they're bringing in a lot of these these outside uh, elements, really turning it into that multi-media nonsense that I talk a lot more about in the Resurrections episode. But because of that, the structure of the story and the structure of the film is nowhere near as tight or understandable as the first movie. Because yeah. the first movie, as you pointed out, is very much like the hero's journey. Uh, it, it fits into that very succinctly. And this one, since Reloaded is almost entirely set up to Revolution's like, like outcome, it's really hard to say anything at all about it from a traditional structural sense, which makes the pacing all over the place. And then the, the big thing about the music that I wanted to mention that, uh, Mackenzie, I love that you started with that. All of the music I heard from the first Matrix, I heard for the first time in the Matrix. Mm. Most of the music from this movie, I had been listening to ahead of time, uh, just because for whatever reason, my high school career was punctuated by listening to a lot of Juno Reactor for some reason. <laughs> so but Conga was, Fury was just in your head already. It was very strange to, to go back and watch this movie and be like, most of this soundtrack was just on repeat and shuffle somewhere in my life back then. That's weird. <laughs> yeah, this, uh, what you're um, uh, leading up to on this one is quite how corporate this second film, I think of the four, this is the most corporate. This was the most of Warner Brothers going, we are gonna make a fortune with this franchise. We know what we have. We know now. what we have. We know all the kids love this. Buy the sunglasses, buy the, like everyone wants to dress like the Matrix. We'll have video games, we'll have milkshakes that are green. We'll have Paul Oakenfold do a remix of Dave Matthews Band's When the World Ends. We'll have P.O.D. on the soundtrack with Sleeping Awake. We'll have Dread Rock on the CD soundtrack by Paul Oakenfeld again, even though it's not in the movie. And Comet by Juno Reactor, even though it's not in the movie. Because this folks was the era of CD soundtracks with songs from and inspired by such and such a movie, which means that the music label wanted to push those bands to the front, often at the expense of music that was in the movie. Sometimes songs were inspired by the movie several years before the movie was released. But I mean, the second disc is definitely gonna be for the score. You're gonna give Don Davis his time, right? Right? You're definitely not just going to give Don Davis two two-minute sections from the beginning of the movie, main title and Trinity Dream, and then just a suite at the end, just 17 minutes straight on a track no one will listen to. No, that's exactly what they're going to do. That almost makes it feel like Revolutions was the Wachowskis going, okay, you give me that Achilles tendon, yeah! <laughs> 
I don't know, because here's the thing. When I uh, and I'll talk about this in more depth next week, and I think I'm going to mention it in every one of the four uh, films that we talk about. I went in with the smash the system mentality of the original film, and so at the end, I was like, "You've become corporate shills, telling us we should just get on with our overlords." Ah, I'm out of here. And I just I went away really disappointed at the end of the the third movie after being kind of. I don't know where this is going at the end of the, the second movie, so this took a long time for me to kind of get the hang of. But there are certain elements to it, which once I sort of opened up and let me in, are the bits that I have uh, re repeatedly said more philosophically sound, more healthy than what is pitched at us in the first film. Yeah, that's exactly what I was kind of aiming at when I was talking about nuance mm. earlier. The first movie is, yes, a perfectly good hero's journey story that adds a little bit of interesting philosophy around the edges of it. And the sequels have to deal with the fact that they are past the point where the obvious hero's journey stuff ends from the first movie. Mm. And it's not as simple as people want it to be. And I did not watch these movies as they were coming out because I was, you know, like eight. <laughs> I was a small child. I watched, the, I watched The Matrix kind of after the fact on my own, knowing the reputation, but not knowing much about the specifics. Mm -hmm. And I never had that intense backlash that a lot of people had because I didn't have to wait yeah. And I already knew it was a complete package. Indeed. And I I liked what I saw. I made a lot of jokes throughout my teenage years about how crap they were, but that was that was not necessarily my genuine opinion. Mm. <laughs> and that that makes me think as well that a lot of the first Matrix was misinterpreted by a lot of the fans. Yeah. See the entire talk of red pillars from around that time. Um, and even in your Matrix 1, you talk about the uh, Columbine shooting, but those kids were neo-reactionary, like right-wing, like fascist types already. Like if you if you dig into that, like it wasn't because of the Matrix. Yeah, they, they just stole the aesthetic. Yeah, yeah. And I wonder if some of the reason why this and the following movie are a little bit more inextricable is because the the Wachowskis decided that they were going to make their metaphors and their their theming like they're not subtle right they, no. they're not subtle women when it comes to directing but the God first movie I know the, I, I mean I love it but the, the first movie is almost too broad in the way that it can be applied mm. uh, I mean it's, it's demonstrably too broad and so I feel like as they're trying to hone in more on like no you stupid Nazi fuckers it's about anti-capitalism and being trans it is so much harder to parse mm. in, in a lot of ways um it left a yeah. lot of audiences feeling alienated there was uh, there was a backlash on this one there was a serious backlash on this the uh, third one i recall from the time i was critics were probably a little kinder than the fans actually because they were at least trying to dig below the surface a little however uh, did any of you listen to any of the commentaries no. I would like to. I haven't gotten the chance. Okay. Uh, I have an old DVD copy that they are is probably long stolen. <laughs> they are. Um, 
Rather than doing their own commentaries for any of these three, the Wachowskis gave a written introduction as to why they weren't, and they invited in and convinced Warner Brothers to pay for the time of uh, one uh, commentary per film for Dr. Cornell West and Ken Wilber, who were philosophers that love all the movies, and critics Todd McCarthy of Variety, John Powers of Vogue, and David Thompson of the New York Times, who especially disliked films two and three. And what the Wachowskis were hoping for is that these two opposing viewpoints would create a discourse. But what actually happens is if you God. sit down and you listen to all the philosophy for, uh, for two or three of the uh, movies, and you go, wow, there's so much in here. And these guys are smart as hell, especially... Cornell West, who's actually in the movie. He's one of the uh, councilmen. And then you start listening to the critics, and they're like, nah, well, you can see they're just doing this because it's trendy. Nah, well, I suppose they have to throw an action sequence in there for the children. Could you get any more snooty? And they were, they did not seem particularly <laughs> receptive to any of the, the like, the, the, their contention was these films are meaningless, which is obviously not the case. At least that's what they said about two and three. The first one, they were kinder to. They recognize its strengths and tie those back to films that they know. I'm just going to play you a little bit from each. This first one is from the philosophy commentary on The Matrix Reloaded during the Burley Brawl. But these two are locked into a dance of liberation with each other. Mm. And that, to mm. me, is one of the most complex parts of the Matrix trilogy. And rarely examined. Rarely, rarely examined. examined. I mean, it raised a question for me, though. Is it possible to justify life outside of a teleological conception of life? In terms of its purpose and where it is going. Exactly. Mm -hmm. But if you accept a certain purposelessness, is there still grounds for justifying living? Or do you have to find purpose and therefore have to find certain moves within the teleological game of mm -hmm. life? I mean, there's, you know, the voices of Schopenhauer began to be pronounced. I think we're going to see this more explicitly in the film. Uh, uh, Nietzsche is going to become more pronounced. Even early Wittgenstein's Schopenhauerian-like philosophy, where the issue of living beyond purpose, beyond a certain mm -hmm. kind of uh, end and aim design that you somehow are able to sustain yourself and make and recreate yourself independent of some telos, some end, some aim, some purpose. The element that is brought in here is there is a mystical or spiritual dimension to this to the to the trilogy and what Schopenhauer was saying as well yeah. as some of the Zen elements and the Eastern elements is that in the relative world so to speak purpose and choice is fine mm -hmm. that the ultimate liberation is a choiceless awareness an absolute radical equanimity of an awareness of what is not what should be mm. or choice and so on the oldest Zen poem says the perfect way is without difficulty except it avoids choosing. In other words, it's a radical awareness of what is that is the mystical mm. uh, awareness. And I think they really are playing with some of those themes. That's, that's fascinating. And I'll be charitable and only play you a bit of the critics' commentary from the first Matrix. This is just around about the point that Neo meets Morpheus. Yeah, and then you have the weird way in which the dialogue is, is sometimes you can't tell whether it, I can't tell whether it's actively rotten or deliberately stylized. So when the, when the woman says it's, it's our way or the highway, yeah. it's, you can't tell, you know, was that deliberate? 
Also, I guess you can't ignore the fact, too, that this is one of several films where Keanu's own big scar on his belly is, is prominently displayed. Oh, yeah. It's always yeah. in, in the Buddha film. Yeah. And then in this film, actually, they do something to his belly right here. Yep. First strong color in the film? Yes. Yeah, except less prominently with, with the character's lips and the rear Yeah, yes. the tires. lips and the rear light. Yeah, yeah. The rear lights. Yeah. And of course, we don't know where we are either. We know now where the film is shot. Now look at that. I mean, the way the water yeah. goes down the wall, just staggering. Extraordinary. But we don't know what city we're in. It's the no. anonymous big city. It's the city. And with the... Uh, yeah. Uh, early 20th century architecture plus uh, and the, the most modern well, I mean, you know, yeah. that's out of Fritz Lang. It's, yes. it's it's very classical. And he lives in the 18th century yes. or some vague version of it. Distant echoes of uh, the final part of 2001 with yeah, the decor. very yes. much. The yeah. tattered. You know, and this, and this is the real Joseph Campbell hero with a thousand faces stuff where, where, where you meet the mentor who at the same time actually while being a mentor, slightly is in awe of you at the same time. Yeah. That's a good description of Keanu Reeves. <laughs> the, the background of thunder here, I think, is beautifully done. Yes. Tim, future... The Wachowskis claimed that they weren't trying to say one was right and one was wrong, but... <laughs> I think they probably were. <laughs> but it, it did make the, the second commentary irritating to listen to, even if I agreed with them. That's what that sucks, is, because th- these are hilarious. poorly structured films. They, they do obfuscate the salient points of the philosophies with distractions. Stuff. And stuff. There's a lot of stuff in here. Mm. I it's tried to that's... prune it away with my edit, but I couldn't get rid of all of it, because a lot of it is load-bearing stuff. <laughs> it's really it's very, unbalanced. It's very sweetly naive of the Wachowskis to think that they'd created discourse. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it's a discourse in the mind of the listener rather than a discourse between the two, uh, well, the, the, the fun that the philosophers had just watching and chuckling away to it, to each other and, and invoking all kinds of other uh, philosophers from, uh, from history and going, well, this is like Kant, this is like Baudrillard. And I'm like, oh, God, I, I can't keep up with this, but these guys are so fucking smart. It was, in Sharon's words, one of the most fascinating things she's ever listened to. And uh, we usually uh, refer to, uh, in, in commentary terms, we reserve that for Guillermo del Toro. I think it was falling a victim a little bit to the fact that The Matrix was so influential and so important in cinema by that point, and everyone was trying to do their thing with The Matrix, that by the time the sequels came out, only two years later, mm. they three, were... Uh, four years later. They came out in 2003. Sorry, four years later. Yeah. I was... Just a little bit. Only Although four they years were, they later. They were filming them only two years after they had uh, released the original two. Like they filmed them throughout 2001, which was a uh, some, several horrible things happened during the filming. We'll, we'll talk about later. But continue. So, yes, my point being that even by the times that those came out, other people had been playing with the tools they'd set up, mm. at least enough that people were expecting them to either top what they'd previously done. Mm or do something completely different, neither of which is complete, is terribly reasonable to ask of young directors 
doing something this high concept. They were superficially and stylistically and aesthetically influential on a lot of other films, like say the Underworld series. Like if you look at the huge the way huge shortage of PVC following these. There's almost no difference between everyone from Zion hooked into the Matrix, wandering around with their sunglasses on, and the alleged vampires in in that series who are less vampires and more people out of the Matrix versus werewolves who are clearly definitely werewolves. Uh, the the um, Paul W.S. Anderson's wretched uh, Resident Evil movies with Alice's like slow-mo jump kicking off walls. Uh, Equilibrium, just like, uh, yeah, Equilibrium is probably one of the ones that was trying to do a 20th century Aldous Huxley style dystopia, but is a little too cretinous for its own good. Um, <laughs> what are we gonna we're gonna take? We're gonna take the philosophy. And the gun cutter. And the guns. The Marvel comparison is actually really interesting because I, I rewatched these a couple weeks ago, even before these podcasts were mentioned as mm. happening. And uh, watching them, I was like, wow, you can absolutely see uh, all the technical and action structural sort of building blocks that would eventually become modern superhero blockbusters. Um, but it it lacks that key thing that makes the Marvel movies the smash hits that they are, which is that sort of like winking humor that really propelled the first Iron Man to being yeah. everyone's favorite thing. On oh. the other hand, it has one thing Marvel movies don't have, which is human beings who have sex with one another. Yeah, they are <laughs> sexual at least, which uh, Marvel is slowly work, walking towards. They had some sex in Eternals, you'll all be glad to know. Yes, I appreciated that. I didn't really feel it all that much in the Eternals, but I appreciated the effort. It was a good first knob. Um, <laughs> Is there such a thing? It's like a, a first step, but with the knob. Um, but... Oh, I to get a shower. I'm trying to be serious here. Sorry. Speaking but, of the sexuality... Mm -hmm. uh, there are so many sequences in this movie where I totally get what they're doing. I like what they're doing, and they just they just need to make it shorter. And it's they just go on really yeah. long time unnecessarily, despite the thing itself being cool and necessary to the plot. Yeah, and it the was themes. Cool slow mo boning. It um, is absolutely hilarious to watch them try and film heterosexual sex. Um, yeah, it's the gayest so, heterosex I've ever seen. Yeah, like they have a great sex scene in Bound. It's hot, it's wonderful, it's uh, tasteful. And then later in their career, Sense8 would actually kind of figure out how to do um, ostensibly heterosexual sex scenes, but also very gay. But wow. here, well, I started watching great. the first episode of Sensei and almost did a spit take at one of the early scenes. <laughs> I was like, am I seeing this on Netflix? Okay. You have my attention. This is basically like trying to fit the, the six-hour Marvel series structure into two two-hour films. There's just... I. This would have made a really good Netflix show, I feel like, because that that's where you get to move those supporting pillars around enough to to make them like fit in the the chapters that they need to fit in, yeah. as well as give the supporting characters enough time to make the things that hang on them actually matter. Yeah. And that's that's because if you look at the structure of this this movie especially, it's really good at laying out obstacles and goals before before here. It's like okay, you know. Here's here is the threat to Zion. Here's how much time we have. 
here's where our characters are and what they need to do to accomplish these goals. And it's good at moving these pieces around, but it's also very, very obvious about it. And then it has to be very abrupt about, well, that didn't work, what next? Come back in six months and find out. And it's it's part of part of why it, it suffers in comparison to the first movie is because that was so self-contained. And, and anytime you have to go beyond that and be like, okay, well, all this stuff we kind of vaguely mentioned toward or gestured at, now we have to actually engage with, and they just don't have the time to to properly engage with it in a way to make it as as seamless as it was the first time, or or even as like natural feeling and sort of, if not lived in, at least recognizably human enough that we we get to kind of like, excuse certain shortcomings of the Marvel films like, okay, no, that's just, that feels right. Mm. <laughs> the other major thing with the Marvel comparison and this is more about the whole of the franchise is that it doesn't do this overwhelmingly successfully, but the Matrix is trying very intensely to do that big multi-media universe building stuff that was supposed to be kind of all the rage in the early 2000s internet era, but didn't really come into its own until the Marvel Cinematic Universe found a way to make it work. And I feel like a lot of the issues people had with the Matrix trilogy and the Animatrix and Ninja the Matrix and all that wouldn't have hit as hard with the context we've built since but also you couldn't have had that context without the Matrix trying to do it when it did. So I don't think they did it in a way that worked, but I also don't think anybody had done it in a way that worked at that point. So how were they supposed to know? Another comparison is Kill Bill, which actually uh, the first uh, volume was released at the end of 2003, the year of the Matrix, and the second volume uh, in April 2004. So it was the same kind of, hang on, I've got to come back and see the end of this two-parter. Uh, we watched the Burly Man Chronicles, which are part of the complete Matrix big-ass box set. Uh, and that is the, uh, it's, a, it's an hour and 34 minutes of making of material, but it was not put together in the way that uh, the Lord of the Rings appendices was with people talking about the various challenges they experienced on set retrospectively. This was like Costa Boat's documentary, just uh, filming stuff going on in rehearsals. And the original Matrix was filmed over 118 days from March 98 to August 98. The two sequels were shot back to back between March 2001 and August 2002, 276 days total. The Burly Brawl alone took 27 days to shoot. The freeway sequence took 48. So the behind the scenes footage was punctuated with day 108. 168 days left and it's like, oh my God, this thing is just going and going. And it was intriguing to note that most of the actual within the Matrix stuff and the fight choreography happened early on, and most of the Zion-related stuff happened later. And uh, they, they seem to be doing the sort of the, the little bit easier, mostly just dramatic stuff at the tail end. But everyone just seemed really tired and run down. They had experienced multiple tragedies during the filming, which and no one had a break. No one had a break to just go, you know what, let me just step back from this. So uh, Alia, who was originally going to play Z, died in a plane crash. 
Uh, and uh, Keanu Reeves' girlfriend at the time, Jennifer Syme, she died April the 2nd, 2001, so like a month into shooting. And she was 28, and they'd been together for three years. It was a car accident, and they went through a stillbirth at eight months during the filming of the original Matrix. Frankly, Reeves could be forgiven for considering these films to be a fucking albatross. That he came back to film the fourth one illustrates how much he cares about this story. And then several months later, when they got to September 2001, Twin Towers went down, and Lawrence Fishburne had to give a sober speech to the cast and crew, just using that voice of his to get everybody back on track. And then on the 29th of September, 2001, Gloria Foster, the Oracle, died, with much of her material still left to film, necessitating the recasting of Mary Alice. I would treasure this conversation she has with Neo on the bench if she was still alive today. But the fact that this was the last we saw of her makes it beyond precious. Candy? You already know if I'm going to take it? Wouldn't be much of an oracle if I didn't. But if you already know, how can I make a choice? Because you didn't come here to make the choice. You've already made it. You're here to try to understand why you made it. I thought you'd have figured that out by now. Why are you here? Same reason. We're all here to do what we're all here to do. I'm interested in one thing, Neo, the future. And believe me, I know, the only way to get there is together. You have the sight now, Neo. You are looking at the world without time. Then why can't I see what happens to her? We can never see past the choices we don't understand. Are you saying I have to choose whether Trinity lives or dies? No. You've already made the choice. Now you have to understand it. Seems like every time we meet, I got nothing but bad news. I'm sorry about that, I surely am. But for what it's worth, you've made a believer out of me. Good luck, kiddo. How did you know? Oh, what's really going to bake your noodle later on is, would you still have broken it if I hadn't said anything? It was just sad watching everyone just force their way through this mammoth shoot and knowing that the world was not going to thank them for it. That the world actually probably would have been just fine with one movie. Like, there was a, originally that it was going to be two movies. One was, in fact, a prequel about the original one, and the other was going to be what we saw in these two movies, but they expanded it. And then when you watch the two movies back to back, even on separate days, you can see where they have added and added and added and stretched this stuff out and made it into these two movies. And it feels uneven and uncomfortably structured as a result. We watched four again last night. 
and Willow, who I'd expected to be like, no, I still don't understand it and there's not enough for me in there, went, you know what? This is my Matrix. They laid claim to Resurrections. They loved it. They said, the other Matrix was from the before times. That's where everyone talks like a robot. This is where people are people. And I was like, you have a point. Because the, the dialogue in this is deliberately stilted in a way that almost verges on shyamalan at times. Which And it was in that same way in the original Matrix. It's just that I think the script and specifically it being powered along by the charisma of Lawrence Fishburne telling us everything that he knew to be true so that everyone in the audience was up there and with him and believing that then when you make this film, which actively undoes all of those words that he told you about what's going to happen and says it's not like Morpheus thought at all. It actually ends up feeling alienating, almost on purpose. Almost. I say almost because what creator wants their audience to shout boo? <laughs> they wanted part of the audience to shout boo. The part that they really didn't like. Yeah. yeah. You know, the fascists. But uh, but unfortunately, the uh, uh, the area of effect was fairly wide, and a lot of other audiences were like, specific bits in this were, I couldn't understand a flipping word of what was being said, and also the conclusions were unclear. My part one ended just after the freeway chase, where you cut to a big wide shot of the, the uh, machines digging down to Zion. It's like, oh my god, they're gonna get to Zion, and we've gotten to know these people there, and we don't want them to get hurt. That's a great final shot. That's a sort of, oh shit, what's gonna happen moment. And in the uh, cinema, it was, oh look, next to Neo on his, his uh, unconscious sickbed, there's another guy with a beard. He's upside down. Remember this guy? Everyone remember this guy? You I don't? did not. It was Bane. <laughs> Bane? Anyone remember I, I, Bane? I watched these in theaters, <laughs> um, and I had to ask my mom who that guy who at the other table guy? was. And thank God she actually remembered. She's like, oh, it's that guy who's got Smith inside of him. I'm like, oh, okay, yeah, I yeah. get it. Willow That's straight up good laughed come out of a when that shot came up today. It was like, duh, duh, duh. And Willow laughed in a kind of a, um, that's way more dramatic than it needs to be. (laughs) (laughs) It really feels like there is some shuffling that could have been done in the plot structure of Mm. this movie to make it a movie instead of the first half of another movie. Yeah. Which Uh, they just, and I think it's quite, it wouldn't be terribly difficult, but it would have had to have been done at the script level, mm. not at the editing level. For example, that highway chase scene takes up such a huge chunk. It's essentially the climax of the movie, despite not actually being the climax. And it's not, nothing is really happening in it. And then immediately after, there is a really important and significant complex heist that just kind of gets glossed over. Yeah. And this is where Sharon said, did you edit this or was this the Wachowskis? And I went, some of it I snipped out, but most of it is them jumping back and forth between saying what we're going to do and then showing these boring people in sunglasses doing it. And if they had focused more on those heisty elements, it wouldn't have been terribly difficult to work Bane in Mm. more to the plot, Mm. but they don't. And as a result, him and a couple of other characters and parts of this movie are only set up for the next one. Yeah. 
so either you, you gotta make it one movie like you suggested, or I do think it's possible to have created an interesting trilogy out of this. It's just, it wasn't anybody's intention going into it, and it's extremely obvious if you're looking at it from that angle at all. Yeah. There's a flash of that, just a really quick uh, blink and you'll miss it uh, scene where you will see the... Um, I can't remember his name, but the Indian guy who's a program. Ramakana. He's not at the Merovingians. He, yeah, he's in the Merovingians restaurant. But it doesn't dwell on not, him. I had to look He's not very in carefully. this movie. He might as well not be in this movie. Yeah. He's in the next movie, but you see him at first in this one, which is a great example of how these are one story that just got split up. Yeah. So when Neo says, I remember you from the, the Frenchman's uh, uh, restaurant, and most of the audience were like, huh? <laughs> because they never did that previously on the Matrix, which would have showed that shot again. This is actually sort of symptomatic of like one of the the things that you talked about in terms of like what the audience is told isn't true. Actually, there's there's so many parts of Rev, uh, of Reloaded that feel like they're trying for the Empire Strikes Back. Oh no, we were wrong about X. It's actually Y, and that's both upsetting but also exciting mm. because you have just so many things. Be like, oh wait, no, agents can go into human bodies. What? Oh, the agent can make copies of themselves. What? Neo's not the only one. What? The prophecy was all a lie, and it's just all of these things are just stacked up on top of each other, yeah. and they don't like specifically. You were pointing out with Bane, they don't really sell each one with equal weight dramatically even though they're visualizing each one having equal weight mm. with the filmmaking language for for example like we we don't see the fallout of bane activating the emp and that feels like a critical failure of of not True. making yeah. that choice because you put that scene in say the the beginning of act 3 and all of a sudden the ending of the movie is like oh that's right it's like we we've reminded the audience we've shown he's bad and or even you know, like just the um, uh, the way I said, you could actually you show Bane, you hold on him, and you keep the music creeping, and then as the music creeps up and up, rather than going dun dun dun, you just up and up and up, and then just you slowly show the gold form of Smith underneath, and the darkness starts to close in around him until all you're seeing is Smith sleeping with his sunglasses on. <laughs> And then like, oh my God, Smith is right there. Boom, credits. That's all they had to do. They could have done that with FX. This is even like something that you see sort of distract from the, the central through line of these these two films that works the best is not just the, the love story with Neo, but Neo coming to terms with not really believing he's the one being presented with factual evidence that he is in the previous movie, mm. even though he still doesn't necessarily believe in himself, which is a huge part of his like personality and reactions to everyone in Reloaded. And you kind of have to like dig through layers of of the narrative to be like, oh, wait, that's what they're going for. That's what Keanu Reeves' entire performance in these sequels is reflecting, mm. but it's not nearly the focus that it should be. A lot of that and a lot of the other emotional elements of this movie that didn't work terribly well originally are made so much better after you've seen the newest movie. Yeah, the whole of this trilogy, or not trilogy now, I guess, quadrilogy? 
We haven't saga? used that word except for over the alien films. The Matrix films, the R Quartet, films. I suppose. Uh, it's probably a little bit uh, more artful that way. The Quartet. Yeah, the Quartet. The, quartet. Uh, the Matrix Quartet. Um, Technically, is... it's two duos uh, interlinked with one and four corresponding in a dialogue and two and three corresponding in a dialogue. The point being, by the point... And the Animatrix at... sandwiched in the middle as the bright spot. Sorry, carry on. The Animatrix is a delightful side dish mm-hmm. <laughs> that does needs to be eaten but is often ignored. Uh, the problem that the Reloaded and revolutions end up having getting those themes across is largely helped having seen resurrection and being able to they had this opportunity to just finally point out this is explicitly the point of everything that we've done watching it with that lens so much of it clicks into place especially the neo and trinity stuff which I know that some people don't connect to that relationship I, I dig it straight like even in the first movie i really like the relationship so it works very well especially now uh another big thing i suppose a hangover from the first movie was the yen Wuping choreography which was jaw-dropping in this and actually as as andrew jupin said one of the first times he ever saw big action kung fu wire work done in a, a hollywood action picture was the matrix and it was a first for so many people, and then it was uh, almost immediately followed by Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, Kill Bill 1 and 2, House of Flying Daggers, and Hero. And just Yen Wuping performed some astonishing feats throughout uh, uh, the early 2000s. And, oh, Kung Fu Hustle, lest we forget. Uh, but when it turns up in The Matrix, there are several times when they have a fight just for the sake of it, and it's almost bloodless and dull relative to the like you know edge of your seat oh my god I, I really want to see what happens here just neo fighting morpheus in the original you know neither of them are going to die but you're really interested in the outcome whereas in this you've got rob duggan's furious angels playing in a, as as he fights the the agents including the new agent was it johnson the snack the giant handsome awesome. replacement for the for, Ooh, for Daniel Smith. Bernhardt, yeah. He's awesome. Um, and yeah, so Neo's like, huh, upgrades. Hiya, fellas. And he's almost jokingly going, and then I fight you, da 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 da. It's almost like the Wachowskis are like, here's your Yen Wu Ping stuff, do you like it? And it's almost like you're supposed to not like it. It's, uh, you know, playing with the idea of, of, of it being perfunctory. But then. He fights Seraph in the same way, but that one seems to be a lot more like we just really wanted to do an old school wushu style tea house fight that goes on for 45 seconds, 45 dazzling seconds. And then there's the burly brawl that I've talked about already, which is technically fantastic, but just a bit too much. It falls to oversaturation and it loses its impact because it's surrounded by other smaller, less important fights. The way it's blocked and pre-visualized to me suggests they spent all that time filming it but had certain sections of it gated off in a kind of we'll do this with CG, all CG, fulfill this chunk of the fight, mostly towards the end. And then when they put that together, those bits didn't look great, but those were the bits they had to leave in because it's not the Matrix unless a human figure is doing things a human figure shouldn't be able to do. But just like The Hobbit, where they invested in that green screen room 
just to put Ian McKellen in so that he could interact with all the dwarves during the dinner scene, even though that double-slaved camera rig section didn't actually work and made Ian McKellen cry, they'd spent all the money on it, they'd made their plans, so they just went ahead with it anyway, whether it looked good or not. None of the fights in the original Matrix have sections where both fighters take the bench and let their digital doubles do the punching. Even during bullet time when the camera pans around Neo or Neo and Smith or Trinity in slow motion, that's not computer graphics, that is a very delicate spiral of cameras, each taking a single shot sequentially, allowing them to film the shot in one smooth movement from 100 minutely different but interlinked angles. This is how they sold the original Matrix film to the studios. They had a proof of concept of bullet time, a tech demo, and everyone remembers that from the Matrix. Because in terms of cinematic legacy, if you do slow motion gunplay, you're doing John Woo, or you're doing one of John Woo's influenced filmmakers. Side note, I love that Agent Smith approaches in this amid a murder of slow motion crows rather than doves. That is a magnificent touch. But it wasn't just slow-mo gunplay in The Matrix. Bullet Time was capturing a single moment in an old-school, analog way that no one had attempted before, and which subsequently became a joke in Shrek. That may have been the hook, but it's not why everybody was engaged with the fights in the original Matrix. We stay glued to the screen in film one because everyone is always present in the moment, and more specifically, every fight really matters and is highly emotionally charged. And then there's the uh, Chateau fight, which is definitely perfunctory and definitely doesn't need to be there. And for my shortened version, I ended up cutting out the Chateau fight because as, as much as I adore Yan Wuping's combat, we're also about to get an extremely weighty car sequence and truck sequence on the, on the freeway. And you can lessen the, uh, the, the sense of this is going on a bit by just removing that fight sequence. Mm -hmm. It's not that the sequences are meaningless, it's just almost that they're, they're doing them for that corporate reason of people want to see this, so we've put lots of these in this movie, even if we don't need to. Yeah, I would say absolutely the opposite to these fights or these sequences are meaningless. They're not. The meaning of them is actually more important than the action scene itself. Yeah. But the action scene is what's being taken as here's what's being sold at this point. Mm. But the fact that each This of is them, what you came for. If you look at each of those sequences that you've mentioned there, they all take place in very different environments. They mm. all have a very different tone to them. The freeway being this sort of wide open area that they're not supposed to go into because of how dangerous it is. The fight with Seraph is a conversation between Seraph and Neo. And the uh, Chateau, Chateau fight. fight also is... scored by Rob Duggan. In fact, I'm going to play for you now Don Davis's deleted original score for the Chateau fight, which was much more of a swashbuckling pirate, ahoy there matey, almost Errol Flynn kind of vibe. And the studio were like, that's not what we want. No one's going to want to watch Pirates in 2003. But anyway, the Chateau fight... Uh, is, is hooking into 
the setting of it. Mm. Look at what he's got around. It's the him. mythology. It's the like mythology. there's exactly. there's Greek uh, mythology all over the place Absolutely. that they're smashing with there's a variety of weapons. Biblical imagery on the walls. There's Middle Eastern weaponry knocking about all over the place. And I said, I asked you, is this Neo rejecting mythology or embracing it? And you said he can only be playing the mythical hero. Like him doing the fighting right there mm. is him embracing He's it. engaging with it. He's not engaging with it in the way that you would expect him to. He's needlessly he fighting these guys as the one when he doesn't have to. Yeah. He could just and wish their code to fritter away. The fact that they themselves, the, the people he's fighting, have been highlighted as entities from earlier versions of the Matrix, mm. representative of mythological creatures that we recognise in our world. A couple of them are supposed to be werewolves. One assumes that one or two of them are supposed to be vampires. Mm. You've got the twins who turn out to be ghosts. There's a, a sense that the, all of these sequences are telling you something about what the Matrix is and what it was intended to be, but there isn't enough dialogue to really make that what they're There about. isn't that, come on, stop trying to hit me and hit me. All of the stuff that's going on during the Morpheus versus Neo fight, mm. that's a conversation, that's a dialogue, that's yeah. a discussion about limitations that are only in your mind. Mm. And it's all metatextual. But what we have here is so devoid of dialogue that it's almost like just a showcase for the effects and a showcase for the wire work and astonishing levels of, of uh, physical ability. There's a fundamental issue with um, the end of the first Matrix that... Um, basically, at the end of the first Matrix, Neo gets the power to do anything. He's mm -hmm. Superman within the code of the Matrix. And uh, it's, it's maybe a little cliche to say, but having a Superman in your movie does make it hard to have action scenes. Yeah. And this Reloaded specifically suffers the most from that. Mm -hmm. He gets, uh, the, the fight with Smith is probably the most uh, the well brawl. considered. Yeah, the Burly Brawl. That, that's the most considered use of, okay, Neo is still absolutely untouchably strong, but at a certain point you can overwhelm him. But they very explicitly remove him from the car chase entirely because he just breaks that entire action sequence. Yeah. And the fight in the chateau has a little moment where someone hits him with a sword and he stops it with his hand. And um, it's that not you made me well, bleed my own blood. Yeah, it's it's not well telegraphed, but basically that moment is like all the little minions are like, wait. We hit him with the sword and nothing happened. Are we supposed to do anything? But then a tiny little drop of blood falls and they're like, oh, okay, so like if we keep at it, we'll get him. Mm. But they're all wearing sunglasses. They're not actual characters. Mm. Uh, the Merovingian says something, but he's, you know, just an asshole who's trying to like cover his like uh, empire ass. So uh, we have a just... phrase in the UK, all mouth and no trousers. Yeah, I, I can totally picture how you would do that cut. You'd, like, cut away after they drop their guns, and then you cut back to him, like, dropping the big, like, hammer club on that mm -hmm. one girl, and the Merovingian is like, ah, oh, damn it, you're going to be the devil. Because that's, like, a good, like, comedic bringback, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> While we're on deleted Don Davis material, this is his original version of the Burly Brawl without any Juno reactor in there. I don't prefer it, the dynamism of the original gets the blood pumping, but it's nice to be able to hear what Davis wanted to do. Honestly, he really outdoes himself in this one film. 
especially. Which is why it's so fucking crucifying that he's barely on the soundtrack. One of the things that made the first Matrix a perfect action film is that every action scene is doing three things at once because it's not just a kinetic visual break. It's also advancing the, the literal narrative. It's taking the narrative to the next step and it's doing a, a big like a, a huge joint of the character arc like that you can you can track out the character arcs mm. through the action of the of the first movie and in the sequels they're doing one thing at a time and so it's very noticeable i contrasted it very specifically with the fourth film where there are far like all the conflicts that get engaged in are far more meaningful but the actual way that they're captured on film or in this case digital is far less visually appealing. I, I was watching the camera movements of, of uh, either Pope or Yan Wu Ping, who I'm assuming at, at some point like had some control over the cameras. The actual martial arts in this is as silky smooth as the first one in terms of two characters will be attacking one another from one angle and then the camera will move with them from a series of advantageous, attentive and organically linked points of view. So when the camera pans smoothly to one side to follow the fight, it's like you're actually there taking a step back so you don't get punched. It doesn't jar in terms of how it is shot and edited. It allows us to see these beautiful choreographed dancing fencing matches, effectively. What Yen Wuping does is art in the truest sense, and what he gets the people uh, who are under his tutelage to do. Whereas in 4, if you just pay attention to the edits, they go click, 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 and they're over here, and over here, and over here, and over here, and you have the sensation of teleporting around the room and being bewildered and disoriented. You feel a little too close to the impacts, they're too jarring, and then a little bit too far and away from the responses. These are absolutely still conversations, but they're being shouted in an alien language and then whispered from across the room. It's choppy and bits are missing. You get what's happening contextually, but the direct engagement has dissipated. What I've done for you now is try to convey what it was like for me in the cinema watching the Morpheus 2.0 versus old Neo fight in The Matrix Resurrections. Both times, I've had to use the dialogue as an analogous stand-in for camera angles, editing, pacing. And I've used a scene we've all committed to memory to illustrate how alienating this felt. What follows is ridiculous and uncharitable, but it is an accurate model for the visual and storytelling language that I was watching replay itself. Now, you may love the action in 4, but it's not bringing loads of people into the cinema to see it because it doesn't have that universal language that the first Matrix had. I know Kung Fu. Show me. This is a sparring program. Similar to the program. It has the same basic rules. Rules that's in our tummy. Understand. Nope. Get a barrel. So no different than the rules of a computer system. Then hit me. If you can. Good. It's not your technique. Adaptation. Improvisation. It's your weakness. More this fight, Neo. How did I beat you? You're too fast. Do you believe that my being stronger or faster has anything to do with my muscles 
my muscles. You think that's air? I don't believe it. Like I said, that's horribly exaggerated, but the way you feel right now is the way I felt. I have conveyed my emotion to you, the listener. And I am starting to really like Matrix Resurrections, but none of the reasons for that are to do with the action. My muscles. I get that what they're trying to do here is defy our expectations for what the fight scenes will look like, but what they've replaced them with was not something I wanted to watch. And if that was Lana's statement on violence, she did her job too well. But that doesn't mean that the slightly listless performances in this, where Neo feels very much like he's going through the motions and just testing himself. And like when he fights all those Smiths, he could have flown away at any point. And considering how hard he fought Smith before and that the only way he was able to beat him was to go inside of him, I'm not sure what Neo's plan was when fighting 50 of them one might consider him arrogant. Then when he finds out that Smith is more than he can handle, when they go back to the Matrix to see the Merovingian, he should be looking over his shoulder the whole time, worried that Smith's gonna be there. And he doesn't because narratively in the film, Smith's not gonna turn up until that big corridor scene at the end. So no one ever worries about Smith anymore, which I is again, annoying. I don't know if it's just arrogance i think it's also that he is a messiah who's getting all of this pressure to be the one mm. and has literally no idea what he's actually supposed to do mm. the only thing that he's done so far that has gotten people to like give him all of this attention and reverence and treat him like the messiah is be real good at beating people up <laughs> better at beating people up than everybody else and that has inspired a bunch of other people and it's made him extremely important but he doesn't know what is important he has no idea what he's supposed to be doing so he does whatever is in front of him hmm. he yeah, just fights the people in front of him because maybe maybe this is all that i'm supposed to do maybe there's more i'm supposed to be doing I don't know at this point. The Oracle has kind of told me, but there's clearly a lot going on that I don't understand. And he doesn't really come to understand it, arguably, until like the very end of Revolutions. And most of the time, he's just extremely listless. Hmm. I, I, I definitely agree. I don't know if I would describe Neo fighting Smith in that scene as... as arrogance specifically it reminds me more of like when you and i've joked several times that neo and smith were like you know past lovers or something just because they're kiss macy's funny well they have this connection and all of this kind of stuff and the the idea it reminded me a lot more of like you run into somebody who you had a toxic relationship with and they bring you into uh an argument or a conversation that you can just walk away from at any time but there's some part of you that is still like drawn in to, to communicate with them. Mm. Um, like and and there, there's another element, too, that I wanted to, to mention as well, because I watched this with my, my nesting partner, Lynn, and we were talking about a lot of the, the trans overtones from the first movie and how, and she pointed out, and, and I thought it was a really interesting observation, that in that scene, 
Agent Smith really reminded her of the act of internalized transphobia, the idea that Agent Smith, uh, the agents in general are the agents of the system the, that are trying to weed out the uh, the outliers, the, the people who are not uh, the cultural default. And Agent Smith is now rampant. He is different from that. He is now inextricably connected to the individual who was the the main trans theme character from the first movie and still is in small ways in this movie and you you start to see you start to have internally this concept of almost an agent that hounds you at all turns because it's actually a part of you it's it's small a small element that you start to see everywhere the part of you still connected to that system and those values and it's something that you have to like th- there are so many different ways that you have to try to deal with that that it it becomes uh, challenging. You 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 are drawn towards it in a way. In the so same like an way internal that, toxic parent who's continuously trying to correct you. Yeah, or just this this little voice telling you that you are uh, somehow unwanted, undesired, un like not a part mm. of the the system and the culture around you in a way that is hazardous and and painful, and that you should be destroyed for it. Mm. Uh, and it is that internalized homophobia, transphobia, whatever you want to call it, that she saw in Agent Smith, specifically in that scene. And I thought it was really well observed. And I, I started to think of it in that way. I, I definitely way, see that too, yeah. <laughs> in a way, that is Smith offering Neo an answer to that question that seems to be plaguing him of what is he supposed to do now? And Smith's answer, which is wrong, is well, you should just let me kill you. Yeah, well, and and part of that goes into the fact that Agent Smith in this movie and the next one is representative of the neo-fascist ideologies that the kind of people who read the first movie wrong have adopted, and they needed to make the villain that uh, that ideology to show kind of where that ends. And he talks all about purpose, and and without purpose you don't exist, and his whole thing is might makes right. Mm. And Smith is like, I am more powerful than you, you should roll over and let me destroy this system, because those who have power are the ones who should be in control. And and if you do not have the power to stop me, then you should just give up. Like somebody who reads Nietzsche and focuses, hyper-focuses on the ubermensch as representative of dominating the world through strength. Smith in this one absolutely works as, I'm going to bring it into sort of a modern internet parlance, but it definitely applies backwards, uh, would be a uh, modern red pillar who was indoctrinated to this worldview by a system that needs people like Smith. The, The Matrix system needed agents to run. But he, through his experience with Neo, realized that the system isn't enough And his realization that it was never going to be enough uh, drives him basically to nihilism. So now he no longer wants anything from the system because he feels betrayed by it. And he's basically a a lone wolf uh, shooter or bomber who's decided that 
Ne- well, nothing matters, so I'm going to take out as many people as I can with me. And unfortunately, he's got the power to take out everybody. At the very beginning, it's, it's even textually a part of it because he goes to the, the captain moot and leaves the message for Neo saying, you set me free, you unplugged me, because it was the act of watching Neo that red-pilled, quote-unquote, so many of these kinds of individuals who were agents of the system but saw that this, that even that was an element of control and then started rebelling against that for an even more bleak ideology. All the more reason for Neo to doubt his position as the one and whether that has any inherent value at all. Mm. Which he's basically told at the end, no, he doesn't. But But that doubt is a key part of what is going on with Smith as well because mm -hmm. he ostensibly believes that you know this this power is where it's at and the person who has the most power has the most control and that's who he needs to be but his actions in this are those of somebody who is wildly overcompensating he can't be confident enough in himself he doesn't have a self which is represented by the fact that he needs to duplicate as often as he does he can't feel powerful and safe unless he is surrounded by carbon copies of who he thinks he is the other thing that works really well with Smith is, is you know, to to jump off what you just said, Sharon, he's he doesn't just not have like a sense of self. Uh, he's he's basically like a toddler that has just discovered binary results from being able to make like the most basic choices. You know, he he had his his first choice, like basically his first meaningful choice ever was after he was basically killed at the end of the first movie and chose not to return to the source to be wiped from the system. And so he's he's like a, a toddler who just found out that they can dump their toys all over the ground or, or get a, a compatriot to help them make a mess and doesn't understand that other people are people and exist and have any sort of value beyond what they can give to him, which is you know very, very much in line with like someone who is you know, red-pilled into seeing one specific thing, but still doesn't understand that people exist. He's he's very clearly going through a very early stage of development and has no actual concept of results beyond destruction, which the, the third film very explicitly spells out. Mm. Can we just say quickly, Smith, fantastic character, God, does Hugo Weaving just kill this performance? Absolutely. He's the one of the best things about the entire Matrix franchise is getting to watch Hugo Weaving just like eat that character for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Mr. Anderson. Still fucking dead naming Neo. Get my packet? Yeah. Oh, good. Smith. Whoever it is, he's not reading like an agent. Surprised to see me? No. Then you're aware of it. Of what? Our connection. I don't fully understand how it happened. Perhaps some part of you imprinted onto me something overwritten or copied. It is at this point irrelevant. What matters is that whatever happened, happened for a reason. And what reason is that? I killed you, Mr. Anderson. I watched you die. 
with a certain satisfaction, I might add. And then something happened. Something that I knew was impossible, but it happened anyway. You destroyed me, Mr. Anderson. Afterward, I knew the rules. I understood what I was supposed to do, but I didn't. I couldn't. I was compelled to stay. Compelled to disobey. And now here I stand because of you, Mr. Anderson. Because of you, I'm no longer an agent of this system. Because of you, I've changed. I'm unplugged. I'm a new man, so to speak like you, apparently free. Congratulations. Thank you. But, as you well know, appearances can be deceiving, which brings me back to the reason why we're here. We're not here because we're free. We're here because we're not free. There's no escaping reason, no denying purpose, because as we both know, without purpose, we would not exist. It is purpose that created us. Purpose that connects us. Purpose that pulls us, that guides us, that drives us. It is purpose that defines Purpose that binds us. We are here because of you, Mr. Anderson. We're here to take from you what you tried to take from us. It's also just so much fun to watch other people play Smith, too. Like, yeah. it's it's really fun to see him in Resurrections and Reloaded played by just completely different actors. And you're like, nope, I, that's Smith. It's definitely <laughs> Smith. <laughs> yeah, and it's why I wish there was more Bane in this movie, despite the Bane thing being a problem for the narrative. It's that the actor who's doing that seems to be doing a pretty dang good job in the few sequences we get of oh, him yeah. being Smith. I was like, when I first saw it, I was like, is that Hugo Weaving in a beard? Get Hugo Weaving in that man. <laughs> it's amazing. And that's really hard acting work. It's very difficult to capture somebody else's performance in a way that doesn't feel like a mockery. And everybody who's done it has done a great job because Smith is just an awesome character. He's a terrible person. He's a great character. <laughs> Speaking of the agents, though, I kind of feel like we should discuss all of the other exiled programs and how they're supposed to fit into everything, because they're supposed to be these first hints that there is more to the Matrix than we believe, that it's actually been reset like mm -hmm. five times, all of that jazz. And there's a lot of fun speculation to be had in what roles did they initially fill? So the ghosts are pretty, pretty the clearly white supposed to be, The white Rastas are pretty <laughs> clearly supposed to be previous versions of the Matrix agents. They are these unkillable, unstoppable fighting machines that can phase in and out of stuff as a feature that seems like it should be more useful than it actually is, which is probably why they got scrapped. Hmm. And I think it's interesting that they also seem to be somewhat like Smith in that there is two of them that seem to conceptualize themselves as a single unit. They refer to themselves with we pronouns. They, I don't think that they're twins so much as they are exactly what Smith is, but they just kind of settled down after two. 
all all the hints at previous matrixes are um very very subtle because like in the first movie we get uh smith telling us that uh, there was an earlier version of the matrix which was you know just a, a paradise to live in and nobody liked it it was a disaster uh, entire crop so i mean I don't know if Morpheus told anyone about that, but that is enough explanation for audience members to be like, okay, so there's leftover programs from that era of the Matrix, and you don't really ask any further questions. But then the Merovingian and uh, Persephone have some just like, blink and you'll miss it lines. Persephone says something about how when they first got here, uh, the Merovingian was a lot like Neo. That We which... spotted that for the first time today. I've seen this movie a dozen times there. before. I never caught it. There's, yeah, no, that there's a solid he implication could maybe there have the Mer- been one of the ones. Yes, he... uh, I hope not. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. So, but if so... if so, he would have chosen a selfish existence to just keep going within the code of the Matrix. When he says, I survived your predecessors, what he actually means is, I survived the purge when they wiped the Matrix and then restarted. I hid in a little cubby hole and continued being this selfish French prick. He also so means he survived I... the other ones who have come through. Like Yeah. <laughs> So oh, I like, need yeah, to jump yeah. in. The other ones with... sort of came through with their amazing kung fu abilities, and he was like, "Yes, but I can swear." So I need to jump in with a whole variety of of just because canon is an abyss. The Merovingian is described as an old operating system. He's essentially what happens when Windows ninety five is replaced by Windows XP for the Matrix. Mm-hmm. Um, he was not, in fact, one of the ones, but he uh, per- Persephone specifically is talking about the. Fact oh, is that this law connected her? with the Matrix Online? It's it's connected with half a dozen different places. Okay, Don't thank even. Thank you. Um, it, it, Persephone is specifically talking about how uh, Neo reminds her of the Merovingian when he was younger because her entire interface with other people involves love and the act of loving. And so in that moment, she's saying that Neo, you love Trinity so much, you remind me of when the Merovingian loved me, and the Merovingian was capable of love. Um, in much the same way that Seraph only understands a person by fighting them, Persephone only understands a person by kissing them. That actually comes up in a couple of the ancillary materials. Um, Fantastically so, played by both uh, Lambert Wilson and uh, Monica Bellucci, by the way. Both of them just eating up the scenery. We were talking about the, the Chateau scene earlier, and you, you had like a deep mythology read, and you had the other reads. And then the, the third read, since you know you have to do three things as a reaction scene, as you said before, is it's also a weird sexual RP between the Merovingian and Persephone that like nobody really wants to get in the middle of. But mm-hmm. um, oh, Did you notice when she comes in and like talks to those vampire dudes who are watching an old-ass Dracula film? I think it was one of the Hammers. Uh, she's like, you know, that she asked them a question and they straighten up and go, yes, mistress. And I'm like, what sex games have you been playing? Well, and so here, here we go. Another abyss. So the one she shoots, his name is Abel and he is the first of the werewolf exiles. His companion, Cain, <laughs> is This computer over here is clearly exile. a werewolf. I, I hate that I know this information. <laughs> What is a werewolf doing in the Matrix? Well, and and the Exiles are specifically programs that had other purposes, but either were corrupted in some way or were replaced by some other program. And instead of going to the source and being deleted and turned back into code and or whatever, they run to the Matrix and hide. Uh, so Smith himself may I is in my hidey hole. Uh, yes, this, this would be the Merovingians. Probably he's got uh, Merovingians moving castle. Yes, <laughs> it's the underworld. 
Well, yeah. It's, I mean, the, the, yeah, the fact that also Neo is coded as Jesus so blatantly and so repeatedly, which means that even though Hades and Lucifer are not the same thing, the whole he was like, he reminds me of you. Again, we're, we're talking about the God's favorite falling to earth and having to do all the underworld stuff. He's also something of an Orpheus in this, in that he goes into the underworld to save his you know, beloved, mm. although it actually works this time <laughs> for a um, while. And then it is, of course, neatly reversed by Trinity playing the Orpheus role in the third film. And then the other thing is uh, when the the one is taken to the source in the previous iterations, the Matrix is not uh, like shut off and turned on again. It is soft booted, which means that they don't actually need to go and hide like they do between the sixth and the seventh iterations of the matrix i'm so sorry no no that's fine that's all good like it it prevents us getting emails <laughs> yeah I, I i saved like three d three uh twitter messages and made one person like vaguely amused we have no massive discussion about the freeway chase it's jaw-dropping still to this day and the Wachowskis very cunningly focus on Morpheus, Trinity, and the Keymaker, three characters who can all absolutely die, and the plot can still continue, which made it nail-biting in the cinema, and it still feels like a skin-of-their-teeth series of astonishing feats. The CQC with a bone-white raster and a straight razor, in a car park and then the backseat of a car, Morpheus facing down an oncoming SUV like a three-way collision of Kurosawa, Wu and Singleton, Trinity racing against traffic on her Ducati, Morpheus standing his ground against that agent, and there's enough practical to make this not just feel like they're standing in a green screen set and piping in the dangers later. And this whole sequence is all in service of supporting Neo in fulfilling the path of the One, which Morpheus still so doggedly believes in. And all of us are about to get the rug pulled out from under us. And I love the fact that the Wachowskis brought this forwards for the car-foo of Speed Racer, which I feel like we're going to cover this year as well. It's the year of the Wachowskis, fuck it. Let's just rewind a little bit to Zion, which is the bit that no one really wants to talk about quite as much, uh, because there's so much Matrixy stuff going on here and so much subversion. But obviously we, we imagined what Zion would be like uh, back when we saw it in 1999, and then it actually turned out to be pretty much what we imagined. Maybe they were eating a bit less tasty wheat. Uh, but. Uh, then there's there's various positionings of the people underground as uh, you know you know the way that they fawn over Henry Cavill's Superman in Zack Snyder's uh, you know messianic uh, Man of Steel series they're all sort of like touching him and he's very uncomfortable with it and sort of giving him offerings and saying look my son is on the Gnosis could you look over him here's a Twix we also get to meet a bunch of other people who only live in Zion, so Z, and the kid, and Locke, and the Link. council, and well, Link uh, is, is the link to Zion through the rest of the uh, ship. I feel like this is another one of those places where they kind of messed up. All of the scenarios where there are people in sunglasses, at night, in brick rooms, talking 
totally monotonously at each other about plans of things that are going to happen in the upcoming war and then the analogues of that where they're doing the same thing with beautifully showered skin uh, you know scrubbed and like everyone looks like they glow but they're wearing ratty old sweaters in what appears to be a cold dark uh, old munitions factory I, I feel that the Wachowskis hoped people would engage with these characters more than they actually did I I really liked Link. I just looked up his actor, and he was Mercutio oh, in yeah. Romeo Plus Sign Juliet. Absolutely, he's so um, likable. I love him. He's amazing. Um, I, uh, my head canon is that his wife Z is actually named Zelda mm. because the Wachowskis are definitely that nerdy. Yeah, nice Link. Oh, I, nice. Yep, I yep <laughs> nerds. I think the Zion stuff really shows the most where it would benefit from being something like a series. Yeah. Where you're allowed to spend time with secondary characters and yeah. flesh out the like day-to-day a battle star galactica. It's I like a lot of the moments in Zion. I love when Link goes home and he plays with his nephews, and you get this sense of like this is what they are fighting for. Yeah. There is a hu- There's a community here. There is there is love and hope and people that care about each other. I don't love that Dozer just quietly is like. <laughs> oft sometime between movies because I really liked Dozer, but uh, no, off, I, uh, Dozer was oft in the original movie. Tank was Tank, believe yes. it or not, you piece of shit, you're still gonna burn. You I, really I, like saying that. I, know, I S- love Stephen Sadak started it, but uh, <laughs> regardless, I feel bad that Tank doesn't. Get, get, I mean, that's because get. Marcus Chong went. Oh, you want to uh, do a Matrix Two, do you? Well, how about you give Marcus Chong? Um, cool million dollars and uh, Warner Brothers went uh, no do you ever hear what happened to Crispin Glover and uh, Marcus Chong has been in nothing since which is sad because he actually is charismatic and fun to watch as Tank he's so charming yeah. but oh, Link try doing also... it without Tank they did it without Tank Link they is literally Link is like the Krogan that you get if you didn't save Rex but he's a great <laughs> Krogan but he's a great dude the, the point being that the Zion stuff works its best when it's showing you its humanity and it's the weakest when it's trying to integrate into the, like the politicking and the plot mm, stuff Babylon 5 stuff Yeah, you don't get enough time with those characters to really care what their opinions are mm. like the closest is Niobe and unfortunately she doesn't get nearly enough to still care about what's going on there. Yeah. I actually think it's done much better in Resurrections and you spend significantly less time in um, yeah, the Zion equivalent that. in that. There's a lot of it I really like the ideas of. I really like the idea of Neo talking with the counselor at the engineering level and mm. going I've got a over big thing on that in just a second. How that functions. But he's one council member of a council that we vaguely understand exists. And that's about it. We see a meeting way later in that movie, but yeah, I just don't think it's it, it has the time to do what it wants with Zion, but it's putting too much of it in for the time that they have. Also, we like the character of Morpheus. He's shepherded us through the first Matrix movie. He speaks beautifully. Lawrence Fishburne acted his ass off in all of these roles, and uh, he 
seems so sure of himself, which is again why it's jarring to learn that Morpheus is actually straight up wrong in many, many ways. And the dogma that he clings to, this is something that Cornell picked up on, is very comforting, but it can be misused even unknowingly to lead people in the wrong directions. The promise of a promised land based on blind faith that what's over the next hill will be the thing that saves you and everyone by divine providence. I give you more. Oh, looking forward at one leader, capital L, at one spokesperson, capital S, and here he is. Well, Morpheus gives a very strange speech here. I mean, it's wonderful on the one hand, and it's very, again, it's very telling, actually. Mm-hmm. This is a very traditional kind of uh, oration, invoking the past as the basis of a future that can be preserved by means of sacrificial activity in the present. Dogma is so powerful and efficient when it comes to mobilizing folk. All right. You got humanity Amen. of all Amen. different colors, classes, genders, sexual orientation, region. And it's fascinating that all of humanity is characterized disproportionately by people of color. And whatever the context, across the board for the Wachowskis, which is of course true in terms of humanity as it exists, but you would know that looking at most Hollywood films about the future. Yeah. Also, it sounds superficial to say, but we like Morpheus because as well as saying all these amazing things, he can fight and be a badass in an action movie. This means when the chips are down, he can literally defend his point. We respect the council less because they sit in chairs the whole time. This shouldn't be the case, they're thinkers, we should respect them for that. But as audience members, we respect determination, forward mobility, even if it's following the wrong path. His opposite is Locke. We don't get to see him fight. Harry Lennox isn't cool and he's just a grumpy old git that probably reminds us of mo mostly of our fathers saying no you can't go out on Saturday. You have you got to mow the lawn and you got homework to do. He, like his philosophy is also wrong. Yeah. Well, we've we've got to just batten down the hatches, conserve bullets here, keep all of our ships uh, handy, and we will survive the onslaught of machines. It's a very temporary way of living. He is also wrong, but so's Morpheus also wrong. And it feels like these two films together absolutely lack a scene where Morpheus and Locke have to work together, both exceeding the point that they were pushing in the wrong direction and they now need to push together in the right direction. That dynamic is sort of a, a representation of the problem with Zion in that we're already in a crisis point with the countdown clock going when we get to Zion mm. and it's like hours into the countdown. We never see Zion in repose. Yeah. And it's not just that we could have had more time with like a series or, or maybe, you know, something else like that. There's just never a point where we see what what we're what we're supposed to get as like the the day-to-day -day more comfortable version uh you know and again not I to bring don't back think it like, ever gets fully comfortable everyone's fucking terrified of sentinels thank you x-men well, uh, like exactly. 24 7 uh, and they, they they do sort of force in a few good night zion sweet dreams like look at this beautiful quiet big place uh relative to um you know w what it's like when Locke's bitching and shouting about doors and gates and things 
but it's it's never like meaningful in terms of how it's shown to you it's never meaningfully differentiated from the the rigidity of the matrix the way that say the nebuchadnezzar is like there's there's like actual downtime and and just like quiet uh, on the neb in the first movie that i think they try and sort of recreate in in reloaded but it always feels very staged and diorama-esque because they're trying to like rush through the okay we have to have this character say this thing that they're thinking and then we have to make this philosophical point about needing the machines and then we have to get to the next scene because we just don't have time to dwell watching this movie before seeing resurrections i really didn't think much of zion the most important part of it to me was was morpheus's speech which i'm sure we're going to get to um but after seeing the uh, Io in Resurrections and the conversations there, they describe Zion as being in its own kind of matrix, locked in this mentality of war. And we know, we, we learn in Reloaded from the architect that the both the function of Morpheus as the follower of the prophet and Locke being the hard-ass military guy locking into that conflict are both elements of the same system of control mm-hmm. that they are they do all tie back into the very system that neo is uh somehow fighting against and not sure what to do and feels yeah. complicated feelings about falling into line with either of these choices because yeah. they are still following that same they're playing their parts they're doing what the architect wants them to do mm-hmm. Very yeah. strongly. I think and there are ideologies that can't survive outside of the conflict. And mm. I think at the end of the day, that's what they're missing is that they can't actually visualize what they want after they just know what they're fighting now. Although it is nice to know that Morpheus uh, grew to like the outcome of uh, the third movie. Mm. I think with that in mind, what I could possibly have done with in the in the Zion scenes is the viewpoint of a, a handful of children of Zion who mm. were born in the real world, who have no plugs, who don't know the Matrix, who are, took the position that this is not our fight. You are trying to... Because all of them seem to be like, yep, I'll come up with you and be your operator and I will get you to broadcast depth so you can go up there and do your thing. Where were the people who were like, this, you're using me in an argument I'm not part of? Yeah. And also, it it means that they're removed from the people in the Matrix. Like, fuck those people, I never knew them. Like, you know, why should we care about the 99% of humanity that would rather stay asleep? Which, subtextually, is the greatest question across this quartet of films that never gets directly asked. Everyone else is asleep, dreaming of a system that gives them a purpose. What do we, awake on the outside, do um as a uh, gay metaphor um the uh, matrix zion basically represents the queer community going off and having its own little bar to itself oh, yeah. and it um, in that sense the the rave is absolutely on point mm-hmm. um that is uh, a very gay rave they're all right and as cornell observed the majority of zion are people of color definitely something i noticed about like the two sequels more so than the first one like the first one definitely has like um not white people on the ship but god you go to you go to zion it's like wow they got a lot of uh people uh, poc to be in the backgrounds of this which you know 
oh no, they're not the actual main characters. That in case we've got Morpheus and Link and I guess most of the uh, yeah, there's a there's a yeah, lot of, that, of color showing and it's the, Zion is designed to feel like the cradle of life rather than just white people controlling it again. It's the which opposite you know, of the if Matrix. we if we take the context of people who choose not to be in the Matrix are people who you know, don't feel like they belong. Mm -hmm. Um, If the Matrix is recreating (laughs) racism, which it doesn't have to do, but it probably is. (laughs) It helps for control, definitely. It it, it establishes hierarchies. I wouldn't be surprised if a lot of uh, POC inside the Matrix are like, wait, I can just leave? This is bullshit, (laughs) but I can go. They're selling their farts now as NFTs. Can I wake up, please? (laughs) Well, it's, that's one of the things that is good about the broadness of the metaphor unfortunately is that it does mean yeah it can be used by people who aren't oppressed but it also means that it is pretty effectively applied to basically any genuinely oppressed group because they all are put under these psychological modes of control these are the concepts of normality that don't apply to them and that they can escape from because they're all bullshit yeah there's also just genuinely not a villain from the uh, system itself that I would call... I mean, by the end of the third movie, you could make the argument that the uh, Oracle has been part of the problem, but she's trying not to be. So, hmm. like, the the we villains the inside no the Matrix are all much. Smith and the architect, who is uh, the whitest man to ever. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and the Merovingian, who is foreign and yet still very white <laughs> and the white rastas but the next time you storm the pta crusading for better lunch meat or whatever it is you white girls complain about ask them why they can't buy a book written by a black man that's, that's right, right mom. mom don't even get me started on youtube no and yet and that's why you just don't trust white people with dreads i think it's an important <laughs> lesson to learn from this movie if my brother-in-law is listening i'm sorry about your white person dreads in your teen years we forgive you now yeah and yet, the uh, one of the other core characters that you're supposed to get to know in Zion is the kid, who you could you can tell people who haven't seen it. Oh, if you watch kids' story in the Animatrix, you'll understand the kid more. You're not going to like him more though, necessarily. And the fact that he is effectively the analog for people who really, really believed in Neo the first time they uh, saw the Matrix and really, really wanted it to work out. He's pitched as a, a Neo fanboy, and he's irritating from moment one to moment the end. And is he a neophyte? He is, <laughs> he's a neophile. But uh, since he's supposed to be an audience surrogate, make him likeable. For God's sake, make him a Samwise Gamgee at least. I thought he was fine. Like, wow, you're the first person I've ever spoken to who liked him. I don't hate him either. Wow, he was absolutely you kids, you crazy not, kids. He, he was absolutely not bringing the kind of... Um, uh, charisma that you need to be introduced in movie two and for me to care about you yeah. but he I didn't mind him he wasn't in the way there's room for you white kids as well it was basically what it was uh, it was saying and that, that everyone no matter how small and seemingly annoying and, and uh, uh, also generally unskilled uh, can actually uh, prove to be an extremely important uh, cog in the machine of war at the end and uh, I I don't know, I I feel like that was one step too far and removing him entirely from these these two films would not leave them wanting. I don't think he's vital. Mm. I don't think he's as much of a 
problem, though. I think he plays into the tapestry in a way that is maybe less satisfying than a lot of the other threads. There was a lot of uh, dislike of him back in the day in 2003. People were saying Jar Jar Binks. Oh, come on. Look, that's that's there, there is nothing that will ever live up to Jar Jar Binks. We need to <laughs> accept that. There's one aspect of the kid that I think is, is important and doesn't... It, it, it works, but doesn't work enough. Mm-hmm. And I see him as the people who watched The Matrix and weren't Nazis. Mm, that's uh, what I meant the, when the, I said people who believe yeah. in Leo and, and, and well, were good intentioned. But, but especially, he, he gives me... There's, there's no way to translate this appropriately. He has big egg energy, which is <laughs> yeah. Alexa knows what we're talking about. Um, the, the idea of, like, the... Maybe it's an ex- it's an experience that a lot of, of people like me uh, have, where somebody will will meet you and then realize that they are like you and come out and transition and things of that nature, and they become like not infatuated, but like really in in like this weird like fixation um, to to like the influence you had on their life. Mm. Um, I don't know if Alex, I saw you on mute, so. I, no, I, I do see, I do see the egg energy. It definitely translates. Um, it definitely doesn't help that he is very masculine, although I guess he could be trans masked. That would actually mm-hmm. work a lot better. Like, Neo is definitely trans femme, but, ooh, no, no, I'm liking this more than now that I'm rolling it around in my head. Yeah, yeah see, and it just, it feels like He's, that's what they were going for and that fits well into his overall fit into the franchise where he's a disillusioned kid who is trying to fill his masculinity by joining a war mm-hmm, mm-hmm. which uh, uh, I think probably applies to some trans men who feel the need to you know embrace those parts of masculinity because they're so valued in our society yeah. That that is that is a, a sticky wicket in the trans community trying to live up to the gender you want to be without living up to all the problems that come with uh, the gender binary. Mm. Yeah. To to uh, to harness your masculinity without also imbuing it with toxic masculinity. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay. And in a time of you know genuinely. Im- important war like it's not quite so simple he's very interested in pursuing this for reasons that aren't great but the actual there is a need still yeah. oh, yeah, it's defense of everything back. that they've built and everything that they so, love. It, it, it does have a, a sense of last ditch hurling their bodies at a destroying evil that will just wipe them out This is not a civil war. It's not that the machines want to fight the humans to a standstill until there is surrender. They have become accustomed to genocide. That is the part of the process here. The human embodiments of free will are there to be eradicated. Rather than it being fall into line or will kill you, it is you naturally fall out of line. Therefore, the sensible thing is to kill you. The, I think one of the other issues, and I don't want to like besmirch Clayton Watson's acting ability, but he's playing a character that's like 10 years older than him. And just so so much of the, the problem with dealing with a young actor and a young character is trying to make the, their ages seem to fit their mannerisms. And, and I feel like 
you know, if if you had like say Tom Holland circa Civil War playing this role, mm. he'd have just crushed it. So yeah. I, you know, I can see what they were going for. It's just, I, I don't know. He's, it, it's one of those places where the Wachowskis weren't quite there in terms of like casting and getting the the more like naturalistic human performances they needed for the naturalistic human environment. They have gotten better at that in more recent years. Sharon, you pointed out that the kid is basically playing it at the age of 10 mm. or something like that. Well, he's he's freed young. He's an example of one of the uh, the comments that uh, Morpheus makes in the first one, which is we don't free a mind after it reaches a certain age, which means that... It has trouble this, letting go. Exactly. So and, and he's not old enough yet to be allowed to go and join a ship. Mm. Now, I think in the environment they're in, they're not going to have some arbitrary, you're 18, now you can come along. Mm. It's much more likely to be 15, 16. Yeah. So that means he is really younger than that. Yeah. And importantly, he gets himself out. He it's he hears about, he learns about Neo's exploits, and in seeing Neo realizes something about himself and the world, and actually unplugs himself from the Matrix, which, which is a big part into of Resurrections. But he does that by diving mm-hmm. out of a window, eyes first onto spiked iron railings. I was like, wow, that's <sighs> a choice. It's very much a teenager, that one. Yeah. <laughs> We'll uh, we'll talk about that next time, but uh, it's uh, I had difficult I have difficulty even today correlating the kid that we see in this movie and the kid that is in Kid Story in the. He's animations. got a very different attitude. Yeah, I, I, lo- I love the idea of him being Tom Holland. I, mean, I get Tom Holland's delivery, that whole yeah, mm, just just that kind of him. Like, there's internal stuff going on, whereas with the kid, it's like, of course not, honey, you're brand new. Um, I think that type of character that you're supposed to find him a little bit annoying. Oh, yeah. You know, Neo's your point of view is one of the most difficult things to get right in cinema, to yeah. be fair. It's a notice like, me senpai. Yeah, it's so, like, I find especially that I have a really hard time connecting to those characters a lot of mm. the time and I've got a weird tolerance for it like it's it's very difficult to to thread that needle and it's, it's not surprising that he is um not people's favorite character from the matrix okay we're going to yeah, work it works by- in Jurassic Park cuz he's 8 <laughs> yeah. yeah but even that like for some reason, my first comes to mind is the Disney movie Brother Bear, where they have an annoying child character who you're supposed to care about because he's like the moral center of the movie, and he's just such an irritating little shit. <laughs> and, and like, fuck them kids. It's not like all of the time, but it's enough of the time. And it, I like kids, but it's so hard mm. when you're trying to thread the the intentionally annoying. And yeah, the character needs to be. A little more chill, I think. Okay, so there are two major things that happen in Zion uh, that I absolutely had to include in my Mm -hmm. cut of it. Uh, And um, one of them has become, over time, one of my absolute favorite exchanges in any Matrix film. And that, surprisingly, is Neo talking with the counselor. It's after everybody's gone to bed after the orgy, which looked exhausting. Um... They're, look, they're walking along the engineering decks on the councillor's suggestion, and he's just sort of 
posing questions to Neo in a not trying to catch him out way, not trying to go ah way, but just in a kind of a, you know, maybe ask questions rather than looking for definitive answers kind of way, which is an old man's game, and I like it that way. Uh, it, He's kind of that missing point between um, Locke and Morpheus. Yeah. He's the person who's willing to consider both of these sides and know that they just don't have the information they need to actually know either way at this point. Yeah, it's, uh, it's a, a, a mature attitude to go, I don't know anywhere near enough about this whole situation to make a resounding choice that will murder billions of people, potentially. Uh, so, after the angry young man smash the system rhetoric in the first film, the other one where uh, Morpheus drums Neo into a frenzy so that he is able to calmly and coldly walk into a lobby and just gun down a bunch of mall cops... Uh, this is an older, quieter, more questioning man who asks Neo to consider what happens if we do destroy the machine, keeping alive billions of people. It's not something you want to hear when you're young and frustrated or even middle-aged and frustrated, but one of the undeniable truths at play is that human beings survive because they're given warmth air, water, sustenance, and purpose. The more hostile the surrounding environment, the more key those prerequisites for survival are. And we already know that the environment of the Earth right now in the Matrix, just symbolically speaking, is fucking terrible. So people without machines will die. Like I said, we need food, air, water, shelter, and that all-important determination for forward momentum. Purpose that connects us, purpose that pulls us, that guides us, that drives us. All things provided in the context of this world by machines, whether in the Matrix or in Zion, or the tunnels in between the two aboard hovercrafts, these are all things that keep us alive. And it's become entirely apparent that the machines who run the Matrix are not the least bit interested in finding any alternative energy source beyond humans. They have grabbed hold of them and gone, these are our billions of batteries, and we are not giving them up. Almost no one comes down here. That's, of course, there's a problem. That's how it is with people. Nobody cares how it works as long as it works. I like it down here. I like to be reminded this city survives because of these machines. These machines are keeping us alive while other machines are coming to kill us. Interesting, isn't it? Power to give life and the power to end it. We have the same power. Yeah, I suppose we do, but down here sometimes I think about all those people still plugged into the Matrix, and when I look at these machines, I, I can't help thinking that in a way we are plugged into them. But we control these machines, they don't control us. Of course not. How could they? The idea is pure nonsense, but it does make one wonder just what is control? If we wanted, we could shut these machines down. <laughs> That's it. You hit it. That's control, isn't it? If we wanted, we could smash them to bits. Although if we did, we'd have to consider what would happen to our lights, our heat, our air. So we need machines and they need us. Is that your point, Counselor? No. 
Old men like me don't bother with making points. There's no point. Is that why there are no young men on the council? Good point. Why don't you tell me what's on your mind, Counselor? There is so much in this world that I do not understand. See that machine? It has something to do with recycling our water supply. I have absolutely no idea how it works, but I do understand the reason for it to work. I have absolutely no idea how you were able to do some of the things you do, but I believe there's a reason for that as well. I only hope we understand that reason before it's too late. Okay. Does anyone get like mad climate change vibes from this speech nowadays? Uh, this we're very dependent on all of these extremely detrimental systems that we're connected to, and maybe there's better ways, but also we don't know how to completely separate ourselves from them, and we at least need to consider that. Yeah, it's it's got multiple readings. Uh, in terms of if you want to actually completely separate yourself from society and go and live in a log cabin somewhere, that's great. When you catch Lyme disease from a deer tick bite and you're dying in your log cabin and you can't call anyone for help because you've separated yourself from literally everything, the thought may flash into your head, oh hey, maybe some of those things about the system were actually about support and some of those which, things should which... have been more about support and less about the acquisition of more and more money, a.k.a. medical. That's assuming that you can even find somewhere to go and live in a log cabin. There are certain societies, the United Kingdom, where it is actually illegal to go and live on wild land. What you're, uh, what you're talking about there, Alex, is called degrowth. Mm -hmm. it's, um, it's, it's an offshoot of the environmental movement where it's like, yo, humans are extracting way too many resources, but degrowth are specific specifically are like, yeah, we're going to shut down all the oil plants and all that, and we're going to go back to living in agrarian societies without any consideration for, like, I don't know, how people with diabetes are going to get insulin. Because, mm -hmm. like, have you stopped to give a thought to how expensive it is to refrigerate anything? Doesn't affect me. I don't ever get sick. Perfect genes. They're all and Dwight Schrute's. Yes, it's it's, it's very it's very eugenicsy uh, when you get down into it. It's unfortunately a little bit complicated because yeah, obviously completely regressing to an agrarian society will just kill a bunch of people, and that is not an acceptable outcome. But there is also a lot of stuff we are doing that is really unnecessary and would be better if we just kind of stopped doing and did revert back to some earlier modes that wouldn't, you know, kill everybody. Yeah, like, look, we, look what show you're on, of course, you know, and absolutely fast agree. fashion, etc. Everybody mm. in the Zion gets this. They're wearing their very ugly sweaters. <laughs> <laughs> and this is one of the weeks where they actually sort of engage with the fact, even before Resurrections makes that explicit text, that that Zion is is in a constant state of like uh, of of war like it can't Zion as a concept cannot progress until something regarding the future is 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 like resolved or or 
or at least m moving forward beyond their their constant threat state, especially as it's presented in this movie. And so like that that scene specifically, Alex, that you're talking about, that's like one of the, the bits where Reloaded really lands the doing everything at once in one scene. Mm. <laughs> so we need machines to live and they need us to live. And this is an inescapable fact that puts an enormous question mark over what Morpheus actually thinks is going to happen to the billions asleep and in bondage. So now I'll talk about Morpheus's speech because it's a huge moment. But it like for, for every time I now see Morpheus, I'm like, wow, he believes it so blindly. Just I, th those words from the Oracle always come back to me. The one of the things that surprised me about this rewatch is Zion is supposed to be very big and important because it's the only human stronghold, but also it doesn't actually have that huge of a population, all mm. things considered. It's less than a, it's it's a quarter of a million people. They stated at some point. It's yeah. less than the population of Orlando, Florida. <laughs> it's which is not actually a very big city. Uh, it's like St. Paul, Minnesota levels of of a city, which is. You know, it's not a it's not a number to sneeze at. Obviously, it's a fair They're number. They're less crazy people. people. You're not going to get Zion Man eaten by his own pet alligator in the same way as you would with Florida. Not yet. Uh, <laughs> they'll get there. <laughs> it was a robot uh, alligator. Damn. But the, but the point being that it's all of humanity is is so small in this culture, and they can all fit into one big cave, essentially. For a speech. For one big dance. And that's... And, and, a, and a really hot dance. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, and that speech is, yeah, it's one of my favorite, like, movie speeches now, even though... It, it, no, no, Morpheus's ideology is very interesting in that he's definitely believing it blindly, and he's definitely wrong about the prophecy being what he thought it was. But the... The core emotional point of we have to fight for something and there is no value in just cowering in fear. We have survived this long. We will continue to survive, not necessarily because of the things I believe, but because we've done so and we will not give up is so inspiring, especially these days. I think actually the moment that most encapsulate Morpheus in this movie is when they've just gotten done talking to the Merovingian and they get in the elevator and Neo and Trinity are like, did we do something wrong? Like uh, the Oracle just told us to come here and we might get the keymaker. And like, did, did we mess up? And Morpheus is like, nah, nah, if we'd messed up, we'd have been dead. Like we we're we're still on the right path. And I'm like, dude, like he doesn't, say it that way he says it much more like loftily and uh considered but it's essentially like we'll know we messed up if we die and like that is considering you came into this scenario with no plan i'm not really comfortable following you places <laughs> fair enough it doesn't it doesn't yep. leave a lot of room for mistakes does it either we get it right or we get it dead I, I didn't mean, mention that we would die if we screwed up on this one, but we probably the, would. The alternate reading of that, maybe the overly charitable one, is as long as we are alive, we are able to keep moving forward. And so we haven't messed up, at least in a way that is irrevocable. Like Precisely. But but he always like presents it as a it it's because predestination 
and one of the things that this this movie I, I think to its credit and in a very quality way of engaging with the potential problems of Morpheus as read in the first movie is that it shows that whatever he's believing in, he only knows how to believe in it all the way up to 11. Mm. And that's just how he processes his world is that once he finds something to, to drive towards, he has to go towards it at full speed. And, and even Resurrections makes his, uh, his reframing of believing in the prophecy to believing in his friends it's still that blind belief and once once he locks onto that he cannot let go aka a zealot exactly Um, and it's it's good to see him get to shift that but it's still a a decidedly tragic character flaw and we see morpheus become stronger through his belief his like revolutionary belief in the first movie he essentially tries to commit suicide by agent smith to let everybody get out and in this one he fights one of the upgraded agents on the top of a truck moving and kind of wins uh to a certain extent in that fight depending on how you want to look at it like he has no fear anymore because of this revolutionary faith Mm. but to go back to the the speech he gives in zion it stands apart from so much of what he talks about in this movie because he starts by saying is it because of what i believe in no it is because we are humans and we have been here and we are an inherent like quality of this place like let's let them hear that we are still here that we are still human and i find it very the the speech sits so differently from the rest of morpheus in the movie Mm -hmm. his voice sounds strange it sounds strange and, and i can't tell if it is because he is essentially like speaking to the masses and knows that they will not necessarily be swayed or interested in his belief and and a lot of the cult stuff that you talked about in the previous episode and 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 other things of that nature and and that it is a persuasive quality where he doesn't hang the speech on the notion of the one which is something he talks about with everyone else he talks about them the people he's talking to and says this is us yeah, believing in humanity, believing yeah. in the strength of people rather than his belief in the one, while every other thing he talks about in the movie is tied to his belief very specifically. Yeah. I wonder if some of that isn't also him kind of reflecting back on a previous person he used to be because there's a a line earlier about how after he went to the oracle everything changed and he used to be with niobe and all of this stuff and i i think it's implied that being back in zion which he doesn't seem to spend a lot of time in he seems to quite intentionally always be out in the matrix makes him remember more of that part of himself and Mm. reach into it a little bit more he dresses differently here every other time he's wearing that long leather jacket or at least the uh the the red sweater of office on the nebuchadnezzar but here he's got this sort of dress coat and bare arms and he's he's kind of messianic in and of himself he's the the mouthpiece the 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 major domo for neo because neo ain't given any speeches he's john the baptist he's there to announce the coming of the messiah Mm. and yet like i I said he doesn't go up and go we've got the one and that's where we're gonna win he says no it's because of all of you but there's no founding in that if you look at the 
spring cleaning process that the Matrix has gotten very efficient at. And while we've been talking about this, I realized that a way better dramatic ending that audiences would actually have really liked and glommed onto is to have Morpheus in there with Neo when Neo has to make his choice. As Morpheus goes, no, bullshit, to w whenever the architect starts speaking, the architect's like, please. To have everything ripped out from under him in a very direct way, and then to watch Neo slowly turning away from the thing he's supposed to do. So Morpheus would actually be urging him to go in the other direction, to fulfill what he's supposed to do, because even though it does mean the deaths of everyone in Zion, it does at least fulfill the path of the One. Like, that would make Morpheus kind of a sympathetic anti-villain. I was just about to say, if you had that, Morpheus would then have to become your villain for the third one, because to have his beliefs thrown into reverse so so hard in front of him mm -hmm. would shift his sense of identity dramatically. And give him a redemption at the very end? Would yeah. that not have been dramatically really awesome? It certainly would, yeah. I mean, there's a As opposed to him why... just fading away, which yeah. is what he does. The moment the Nebuchadnezzar explodes, Morpheus may as well have exploded in it. He is not in these movies anymore after that. There's a reason why when Neo comes out of the, uh, the architect's office, he doesn't tell Morpheus what's happened. No. Not really. He gives him hints, but he does not explicitly say anything because he doesn't want to pull the rug out from under Morpheus. Yeah. And that means that Morpheus is able to continue with the blind belief in Neo because he mm. is still putting his faith in what Neo is telling him. Although a lot of people really did not appreciate the ending of Loki where there was that thing where two people feel two di uh, diametrically opposing growing feelings about what they're being told Indeed. about how things actually shake down. But with regards to the speech, bear in mind that it's what Morpheus is winning people over with there is less the content of what he's saying and more the acoustics. It might sound dismissive, but when people respond to leaders who get up in front of large groups, mm -hmm. it's... They want to they cheer together. They generally aren't really listening to what's being said. I can't remember what the exact percentages are, but a lot of what they're responding to is what they can see. Mm. A, a portion of what they're responding to is how it's being said. What did he say? He said, blessed are the cheesemakers. <laughs> <laughs> what does that mean? <laughs> I think the percentages you're looking for are 70% is how you look, 20% yeah. is how you sound, and 10% mm. yeah. is what you're actually saying. There you Perfect. Go. Thank you very much much Alexa so hence the coat he needs the coat that's 70% of his argument yeah he's like look at this coat I spent ages <laughs> the, with this and the modulation in his voice which sounds amazing because Lawrence Fishburne has an astounding voice and that cave has got to be incredible for carrying oh, yeah. it out he's if projected just blasting it out 50,000 people yeah. less the kids that are asleep have to be able to hear this mm -hmm. and the people that are off having sex um, have to be able to hear this then it, he's got to be able to carry that out over the He's effectively standing in a megaphone. What he's yeah. saying is largely irrelevant at this point. Yeah, he's shouting at a quarter of a million people afterwards without a microphone. He just busted out Mustang Sally. They loved it. <laughs> this this uh, theory of uh, public speaking is so strong that even a complete nincompoop like Trump can take advantage of it. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> like if you hold your hand up and do this to qualify your statements, then people will trust what you're saying. I what a horrible comparison. I, I feel I, dirty. I, 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 the only comparison is the fact that the technique works. <laughs> hmm. 
I want to go back just a couple bits to something Alex said about how you could reverse the speech to be about how clearly they see the future. Yeah. Except for they can't because mm-hmm. they don't have any view of what their future is going to be. And I think that's really instrumental to the whole cyclical nature of the Matrix as it's revealed in this movie. It's that on some they level keep... they're aware that they're not going to make it through this battle. That they've had this, that this has happened so many times, that this is a, their past is always the same, and there has never been somebody who has pushed into the future, and that is what's going to happen now, that everything that they think they know only exists in the spaces that they've already been in, and they don't have any knowledge of what the future can possibly be because it has never existed in any way, shape, or form. I'm surprised we've gone this long without talking about the central thesis of the movie, which is choice. Mm -hmm. But, like, okay, so, um, I rewatched it, uh, I rewatched a couple key scenes this morning, and the way this movie engages with choice is weirdly decoupled in terms of the timeline. It's something that the uh, Oracle says is like, you've already made the choice. You're just here to understand why you've made it. And that's Mm -hmm. very, very true. Neo has already decided that Trinity is more important to him than the one or the plan or really anything. Like he may not understand the totality of what he is turning away from, but he understands that Trinity is more important than all of that. And he's just, you know, coming to grips with the implications of that choice he has already made. And from a movie perspective, having the characters have already decided what path they're on, and then later understand it, like, for an audience perspective, that's really unusual and bizarre. Mm-hmm. It also ties ably into what they they end up landing on in the third movie about not being able to see past a choice you don't understand, which is, A, why Neo can't really grok what he's supposed to do other than figure out a way to save Trinity because he doesn't understand why he's going to have to make that choice yet because he doesn't have all the variables, you know, in terms of the, you know, the choice that the architect's going to present him. But it's also why Zion can't see past its its own present because it doesn't understand how deep into its own recurring cycles it is and therefore can't really envision an actual future beyond just a, you know, well, are we going to wake up tomorrow or not? Well, it's exactly in, in terms of how choice is presented, it does keep coming back to this concept of choice being an illusion and choice being a setup that is used by the people in control. It, it does amuse me a little bit that it's the Merovingian who kind of brings this up because he clearly sees himself as one of the people in control and yet in that speech he's talking about himself as if he was a human, as if he was subject to all the uh, the causality and, and puppet strings being pulled as anybody else. The way the choice is presented to Neo at the end, and this feeds into something that's discussed in more depth in Resurrections, which I loved, is the idea that the being presented with two options is not really a binary choice. A and B is not binary. A true binary is A or not A. And ultimately that's what Neo is being presented with by the architect. 
go into the source and leave your code so that we can reboot the Matrix and all of these people will survive. Play ball with us for the many and the few will die. Precisely, yeah. The, The needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few. That's what he's banking on. He's vaguely aware that by presenting... He being the architect. The architect, yes. Uh, The architect is vaguely aware that by presenting Neo with this artificial binary, he's making it feel like a choice. But ultimately, the only real choice in his mind is you go through that door and you save your species. It, It literally makes no sense to him that anybody would choose what is presented as this fake other option. And yet, as you said, Neo has made this choice already. He already knows exactly what he's going to do. So what he's choosing there is not... Trinity, and I think this is something that that people looked at when this came out and went, well, why would you... It doesn't... To some people, it doesn't make any sense that you would sacrifice billions of lives for the sake of one life. That's not what he's doing. He's refusing to be sucked into that fake choice. And she is what represents his ability to refuse it. It's about ideologies. You've already... Because the, the reoccurring thing isn't it's that you have already made the choice. It goes down to what you believe in, in a sense, what kind of ideology you believe is correct leads you to make the choice before the choice is even presented to you. It's it's um, tied up with the way the Merovingian talks. It's tied up in the way that Smith talks to Neo. It, it is all over this. And in a lot of ways, we don't get to see the outcome of that until the third movie for Neo specifically. That's why the architect can't understand the choice that Neo makes because for him, with his understanding of ideology, of, of his ideology, his understanding of how the world works, there's only one choice that you can make. How could you possibly make the other one? The other thing the architect is doing is, and I and I don't think this is necessarily intentional, but there there is a technique in the love and logic style of of child rearing that specifically deals in offering binary choices to solutions that the outcomes of which are both something that the the person who's giving the choice usually the parent or guardian is like these are both outcomes that i that i am okay with and i am presenting this choice so that the the child feels ownership and so what you have the architect doing is basically keeping the the one you know basically keeping humanity trapped and never being able to progress beyond like almost a a toddler state which makes neo a very good mirror to how how smith is reacting to his world neo gets the illusion of a choice but it's something that is supposed to give him practice to making his own choices independently that then he never gets to arrive at because he's artificially arrested every time they they get to this point and so what what we get with that is neo seeing just a slight way to break out of that and and defy this binary choice and the the way that the film like breaks that i think with or without morpheus you do at least get a very a, a very satisfactory like what whether you choose a or b trinity's gonna die and then neo immediately proves that wrong i think that's one of the ways this this film definitely succeeds and e- even though the architect is like frustrating and is it's hard to break through that much word salad yeah it's in pretentious patter on purpose yeah. the way that accountancy is made deliberately inordinately complex and specialized to obfuscate the finer points of our own finances that we could be doing ourselves but accountants want to make sure that that's their province thank you very much 
Exactly. And so like you you could tighten that up, but if if nothing else, the fact that Neo gives like a giant Superman sized middle finger to <laughs> to that concept is really cool. Um I love the it's, architect it's, all... it's one of my favorites as well. It just even though uh, it does come off as, as as almost a parody of Matrix style dialogue. Hello, Neo. Who are you? I am the architect. I'm Smith's disapproving father. Why am I here? You are the sum of an anomaly, of an equation, of a balance, of an enigma wrapped in a coded whatchamacallit. What you do not know, you cannot explain. And what you cannot explain, you do not know. Ergo, concordantly, quid pro quo, ipso facto, coitus interruptus, with 4.5% over APR billable in quarterly installments and delivered directly to your front door. You haven't answered my question. And you haven't done your chores yet. And a, a bunch of it has been parodied a bunch of times, but they do have a point. It is, it is somewhat It is immensely parodyable. Yeah. It's so easy to parody. Yeah. But it's also As, one of those bits that, like, once you once you go back and revisit it and you see what exactly they're doing, it's like, oh, okay, I see mm. what you were trying to do, and you were, like, nine-tenths of the way there. Yeah. I, I, as a math head, I actually really love that scene. I managed to keep up with it the first time I watched it, although it was tri- it was tricky indeed. But I love that what it basically breaks down to is like, look, we ran the numbers, and the fact that people have to choose whether they want to be in the Matrix or not creates a huge rounding error, and it just piles up. So like, you show up every couple of 50 years or whatever. It's a real annoying, but like, it's the only way we can get the numbers to work out. So, like, can you please balance the books, sir? <laughs> so this is so this is effectively shifting all the quarter pennies into an account on the side. It's the leap year of the Matrix. I think one of the interesting things with the whole you have to choose to be in the Matrix or not, even unconsciously, element is that it helps explain one of the nitpicky world-building elements people might have about the Matrix, which is, well, if you have a human slave population, why would you ever give them access to computers in the first place Mm. so that they understand that? And I think the answer is, we kind of have to give them access to computers because how else are they supposed to have a genuine choice. It's to stop them running through the street shout, as I explained this to Willa, this is something running through the street shouting, it's not real, it's not real, it's not real, and having to be taken away by agents all the time. Yeah. You gotta <laughs> keep us busy. <laughs> yeah. In fact, now that I think about it, that scene literally happened in Free Guy. And, you know, you, you make being a hacker kind of a, a an underground thing, and you're like, ooh, you hack the IRSD base, and... <laughs> And, you know, all of that stuff that was underground in 1999 now feels like everyone's online now. So it's it's the Matrix has changed with our era, which is a good thing since uh, Resurrections reflects that. Mm -hmm. There's an element that as I'm listening to everybody talk about this that I, I just realized that everybody who presents a binary choice, whether intentionally, knowingly or just representatively, are making assumptions Mm. And Neo is the one who doesn't 
make any assumptions. Trinity doesn't either, but she's sort of a secondary character in a lot of ways because Morpheus makes the assumption that the, the prophecy is real and that Neo is going to do this. Smith makes the assumption that might makes right and purpose gives you meaning. Uh, that uh, the lock gives makes the assumption that it always must be humans versus machines, that there is no third option, that, that this war is all that there is. The architect makes the assumption that humans are going to calculate the appropriate greatest good outcome from their behavior. Boy, and, does he not know us. Yeah, right? <laughs> and, and Neo, especially again, as they talk about in 4, uh, he doesn't even assume that he's actually the one, even though he is literally told by the program that put that program into him to begin with. Being like, no, no, you are literally the one. Like we, 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 we went into your 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 config file and we went the one true, and now you are the one. And Neo's like, yeah, but I mean, and and the other big thing to me is if you look at the Matrix being this these multiple levels of control being a representation of uh, society, of, of like modern day society, neo-modern day society. And the, the biggest mistake they made was they accidentally put the one program onto a, a queer person and <laughs> they have never met a T for T trans femme who would absolutely burn the world down for her girlfriend. So uh, <laughs> I'm just saying they made the a real bad call. This... The difference between this Neo and all of the other Neos is that this Neo is just real gay. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Because at that point, if you've already realized that all of the things society told you has been a lie all the way down to how gender, sexuality, uh, m relationships, and economy works, why would you believe anything that results from it when you could instead focus on the actual connections, the actual meanings that you find? This next moment is the two philosophers talking about Neo's decision to save Trinity. And there's that scene. And there's a scene. But it's very interesting in these previous messiahs, if you will, the previous ones, um, five or six of them, that the architect hints that one of their problems was they made the wrong choice, that, that they chose something that's very common to a, a male form of love. Salvin said that males love humanity, but not humans. In other words, it's very easy for a man to love an abstraction, but a little harder for a male to get right down in the nitty-gritty of interpersonal uh, mm. touch and intelligence, whereas women tend to, tend, tend to be very good in that. So in a sense, when Neo chooses to love an individual, he's breaking the mold that those previous ones followed. Now, that may or may not be a good thing. We obviously believe it's a good thing, and it's going to lead to a, a messiah that can have both an abstract love in addition to a real concrete in-the-flesh love of a particular person, in this case, Trinity. This is the moment where you actually see most clearly the ways in which Matrix 2 destroys, obliterates Matrix 1. Why? Because the choice that is being made here is not in the name of universal humanity, but a singular individual. And it appears as if this choice is not a persuasive or desirable one. How would somebody choose an individual given the messianic role as opposed to universal humanity? And we're going to begin to see the ways in which the Wachowskis are now actually marking a real fissure between their vision and the more expected Christian, Judaic, Islamic conceptions of the, of the messianic figure here. Well, and maybe 
Cornell, in light of what you just said, which I think is very important, we should revisit. We've been speaking about eros in a positive sense, not necessarily meaning just abstract. That's but right. as you know, if we want to get a little bit more specific now, we can talk about eros and agape. And here, eros is often said it's the love reaching up for the higher, reaching up for the abstraction, so to speak. Whereas agape is love reaching down and embracing the particular. It's often said that it's God's love of men and women. Right. But in this case, it means a particular love, and a, a touching, a, a, grab, a grasping, an enfolding kind of love. And so in this sense, he's choosing agape. So it is embracing from below, but it's proceeding from on high, whereas for the Wachowskis, all love is going to be proceeding from the human, given their own radically secular vision of things. And of course, the political dimension of this is not, uh, it is worth mentioning too, because if we live in a civilization and empire that has thoroughly co-opted certain messianic narratives, so that in the name of the one capital O, or in the name of universal humanity, capital U, capital H, you still reproduce the same structures of domination, forms of blindness, inability to cultivate a self and a soul, then in fact what the Wachowskis are saying in part is the choice that Neo is making is a choice that ought to be made by those who recognize the way in which salvation narratives have been co-opted by a corporate capitalist world. Now that is very explicit. We all know that if a heavy object is dropped that gravity will carry it towards the earth. It is impossible, rationalistically speaking, that it would hover. It's never hovered before, ergo that is an impossibility. Do not try and bend the spoon. That's impossible. Instead, only try to realize the truth. What truth? There is no spoon. There is no spoon? Then you'll see that it is not the spoon that bends. It is only yourself. If you'd like to understand more about this fascinating concept, Look up Immanuel Kant and the Noumenal World. The words that Neo spouts at the end of the first Matrix are, I'm going to show you them a world where anything is possible, which makes this ending absolutely in line with that of the first movie, because then Neo the heavy object flies. Something we know humans cannot do, and they have never done before. He breaks the cycle of the One, he breaks the system, and achieves what all the other ones could not. It's beyond hope. It's like hope is just a word, the same way that love is just a word. The refusal to accept that you're being told the world is just like this by someone who has a vested interest in the world remaining like this is part of the spirit's defense mechanism. That's, that's actually very true, because the first movie ends with him flying, and this movie doesn't necessarily end, but like the last thing Neo does is somehow, and I'm going to emphasize somehow, uses psychic powers in the real world on the Sentinels. Th that works metaphorically and not at all. Uh, Physically, like that, there is there they there is no physics explanation for that. I will not hear it, and thankfully they never tried to provide one. Well, oh, they is... did. Oh, they did. Oh, no. Do you want to know the canonical reason why that is able to happen? Definitely. I'm good. Wi-Fi. I'm I'm good, Victoria. Uh, well, it sounds like other people want to hear it. I do. So. Um, I'll tell you so, what. Put a pin in it the, for just a second, yeah, okay, Victoria, because I want to bring yeah, everyone, especially please. the young, back to uh, mid 2003 when 
As soon as I went home and went on to whatisthematrix.com, the message boards were abuzz with, oh my god, Zion is inside another matrix. And everyone was so sure that the outer world that we referred to as the real world was in fact another simulation. And this was absolutely reading everything very literally. So, Victoria, tell us the actual facts. Oh my, yeah, the actual facts, quote unquote. I have a feeling that it was more um, explained after the fact in some. So kind of like any kind of Star Trek explanation. uh, Because many years after the episode came out. Yeah. Uh, So it turns out that the particular kind of human stock that Neo and Trinity came from was an experimental stock that they were trying to. I. uh, Yep that they were trying to create humans that could interface with the various machine technologies without all of the pesky plugs and everything that was mostly a failure but it turned out when combined with the anomaly and the one programming allowed neo to con- to interact with machines outside of the matrix which just makes me want to die a little bit that i know i that. mean sure oh, why great. that that's that's about as good as it's going to get mhm <laughs> But again, this is what happens when we take everything absolutely at face value and we have to explain every occurrence in this heavily symbolic world as though there is secret law to be revealed behind it and that that law is anchored in utter rationality instead of layers and layers and layers of symbolism, some of it very overt, to make us all think. Reminds me so much of how people reacted to the ending of Inception, mm-hmm. where they kept trying to do all of this, like, plot math to figure out whether or not he was, like, awake at the end. And it's just like, you're missing all of the points. Yeah, Inception, much like The Matrix, spent a good chunk of its runtime explaining itself, which is very good for audiences to feel like, I'm smart, I can actually get the hang of this. I find The Matrix much more compelling, even through its explanation dumps, than I did Inception. But I'm really glad Inception was popular. Huge effects, mind-expanding discussion, big concepts, and perspective. This is what we need, though conveying it to us through a lens of empathy will allow us to maintain our humanity. All that sensibility that we call humanity, but is not exclusive just to humans. Challenge people. That's that's a good thing. But people have when, a hard time with themes. Yeah, but yeah, as, as a result, it does also weaken a lot of people's ability to read stories and storytelling and symbolism. Because they would latch onto a Thermian argument for why this thing happened, as opposed to the symbolic reality. And I love the way that in the fourth film, this is not a spoiler, an aged Niobe regarding Zion in a kind of a rueful way. Yeah, they were engaged in their own version of the Matrix, a uh, self-perpetuating system. One of the concepts we absolutely need to evolve beyond. War. The Matrix that grips them isn't literal, it's figurative. And they are stuck in this external control and manipulation and they're being funneled down into this cycle 
that's one of the things that was weird about experiencing this at the time versus mm. the people who came to this later is, you know, if you're looking at this movie, if you've like seen the sequels as as a, you know, adult in the 2010s or something, Neo becoming a mobile Wi-Fi hotspot after going through the source door is just like, OK, I at least have language and in, in context for that hmm. now versus like that seeming just like some crazy wizard bullshit in 2003, yeah. which which is also one of the ways that the, this this franchise weirdly ages backward and forward because now the concept of the matrix is like oh everyone's playing an mmo okay yeah i get it <laughs> <laughs> the matrix has this reputation the whole trilogy has this reputation of being like really complicated and hard to understand so much so that i still can't get my mother and father who are very intelligent capable people to watch the dang th- the first one and the first one is not complicated but i wonder how much of that is just how quickly computers became normalized into our culture by the time that i saw them there was nothing about it i didn't understand fundamentally there's some computer programming stuff that i'm not terribly familiar with but i could always ask my brother about that if i really need to know and that was just super not the case when they originally came out. And that's kind of hard for me to mm. even conceptualize, honestly. School of Movies is funded by Patreon. If you're at the $5 level or above, you can currently download our Patreon-exclusive bonus shows on Tick Tick Boom, Batman 1966, Spielberg's West Side Story. Coming up, we got Mortal Kombat 2021, Resident Evil Welcome to Raccoon City, Sean and I going all the way back to Resident Evil Apocalypse, that's the second of the Mila Jovovich movies, Scream 5, Licorice Pizza, one of my films of the year, and everything that didn't quite make the Matrix episodes in a series of deleted segments. And if you're at the $15 level, you'll know that you get a shout out for sponsor credit every week. So, thank you to Aaron Lecluse, Abel Savard, Angus Lee, Benjamin Hoffer, Brian Novak, Cassandra Newman, Chris Finnick, Christopher Wolfe, Kieran Dashler, Connor Kennedy, Dan Mayer, Daniel Salguero, Dan Hepner, Dave Hickman, David Sheely, Duran Barnett, Finbar Nicole, Frankie Punzi, Greg Downing, Jameis Enright, Jesse Ferguson, Joe Crow, Joel Robinson, Johan Clayson, Joe G, Josh Waster, Kat Esman, Kevin Vahey, Lorraine Chisholm, Marty Huey, Matthew A. Siebert, Matthew Webb, Michael Hasco, Robbie Crow, Sarah Montgomery, Tim Rosensky, Timothy Green, Toby Jungius, Tom Painter, Trey Contreras, and Valencia Burns. That will about do it for The Matrix Reloaded, but before we go, can you folks point our listeners to something that you are proud of? Start with Brendan. Uh, well, you can you can find my long stuff either at synapse, that's C-I-N-A-P-S-E dot C-O, or on uh, normannerd.blogspot.com. Um, I all, was also a uh, guest on the Matinee Heroes podcast recently where we discussed The Last of the Mohicans. So uh, Michael Mann doing a... Uh, an adventure that's also a a like harlequin romance brought to life just delightful delightful goofy stuff 
Mackenzie. I'm going to direct you a couple places. My Twitter is at Kenzie Phoenix. You should be able to find uh, the various podcasting projects I'm a part of through there. I do a video game movie thing. We mentioned the terrible Resident Evil things. I've had to watch almost all of those at this point. <sighs> uh, and if you want to check out my art, which I am getting increasingly proud of, it's uh, at Kenzie Phoenix on uh, Instagram. And I make a lot of fake mon stuff. So if you're in any way interested in that, uh, go check that out. Give me likes. I need validation. Alexa? Um, I've uh, still got my YouTube channel. In terms of what I'm most proud of, I would direct you to my uh, Bakuman Did a Sexism, which is the... <laughs> it's probably my best video post-transition, and it's got... Uh, it's me digging into the guys who made Death Note and their follow-up manga where they're just like, hey, what if we wrote a manga about how cool we are for writing manga? <laughs> <laughs> and what's the, the snake eats its own tail. What's the name of your YouTube channel again, folks? Pluto Burns. Okay. And Victoria. Uh, you can find me at Vixen Witch on uh, the Hell site Twitter, uh, where the W is two Vs. Wouldst thou like to tweet deliciously? I don't make hashtag content. Uh, I, I just come on this podcast periodically, which I'm pretty proud of. Uh, yeah, I'm asking me back. Like so. every show you come on seems to be fantastic. It's strange. <laughs> I hope so. But yeah, thanks for having me on as always. I recommend our Shrek show if you really want to get meta. Oh no! Oh yeah! once told me. Yeah, I mean, like we all need to learn our history, and we need to know specifically when the Shrek Age was. It, it makes a really good two-parter with the 300 episode where we really yeah. decided to take the podcast in a different direction. <laughs> that was a fun thing. Lot of uh, Scottish uh, <laughs> voices in both of those. We will be back in seven days to tackle. The Animatrix. It was originally going to be part of our Revolutions show, but was so substantial and brain-bending that it deserves its own place to ponder. After that will be Revolutions, and after that, Resurrections. You can pick up the DVD on eBay for like two bucks. It's way better in HD. Americans, you can watch it in HD on HBO Max. Anyone can rent it in HD on YouTube or Apple TV. If you saw it a long time ago, it is worth refreshing. If you've never seen it, it's definitely worth a watch. So we'll see you next episode for that. Until then, I've been Alex Shaw. I've been Sharon Shaw. And school's out.